And I made 40 here. One thing that I'm finding surprising about the war in Ukraine is how little interest the Biden administration has in arriving at a peace deal. Uh, the, the particulars of a peace deal seem fairly straightforward. The Biden administration wouldn't even provide a letter saying that they would never try to have Ukraine become part of NATO. And a peace deal w- would involve Ukrainian neutrality, Ukraine guaranteeing it does not become part of NATO, and uh, ceding, say, the Donbass, those areas of Ukraine that are most uh, favorable to Russia, that are mostly composed of Russians. And uh, that's it. It seems like you've got a fairly obvious, straightforward peace deal that could have been arrived without any of this war. But the Biden administration has no interest in a peace deal. It seems to just want to lead Russia. And Russia's in a fight to the death. And uh, I was just reading a terrific thread on Twitter by a bloke, Galina Sarotova. He's at the Wilson Center. And uh, he's talking about how are sanctions killing Russia. And uh, Russia's in a death spiral, thanks to its demographics anyway. So Russia's falling. Old sanctions of 2014 sabotage development of new innovative weaponry. New sanctions of 2022 are undermining Russian military efforts, destroying its technological chains and communications. To, to launch a special operation, military operation, to get rid of entire Russia that was created next to our borders. What? To get rid of Russia? Anti, Anti-Russia. Because to... Will markets defeat? So let's let's uh, look at this. So whatever treaty Russia may sign with the current uh, Ukrainian regime will mean that's why they feel like they're fighting for their lives. Because uh, Russia is such a vulnerable state. When Russia sent an automaton to the U.S., Russia also sent an automaton to itself. Right, this is Putin's top propaganda sphere. Russia has no right to lose. It means that Russia has no power to deal with who? With Ukraine? With Zelensky? With Ukraine? Zelensky? And they went on a So this raises the possibility of the use of uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, any treaty may be the beginning of the end of the Russian state. Because if you fail with Ukraine, then where do you threaten NATO? Where do you threaten the U.S.? 
Что вы замахиваетесь на, на, на Соединенные Штаты? Вы с Зеленским не можете справиться? Или вы победите в этой операции, или начинаете обратно еще. It's like Cortez burning the ships when uh, he landed in what's now Mexico. Right? So this is Medinsky, Putin's negotiated Ukraine, claims that the very existence of Russia is on stake. Well, the question that arises, how did these guys put Russia on stake? Is it a compulsive gambling disorder or what? Well, they were sure of Russian victory. We have absolute military superiority. We could easily crush Ukraine. We may not invade, but if we do, we'll 100% win. This is based on an assumption about the invincibility of the Russian army. So compare the vibe of Russian TV in late February and now. Вторая в Европе пускает бровь поднимем и Украина поймет все. И не надо никаких людей. Возьмем Киев. Ни о каком быстром решении и речи не идет, потому что противостоит армия вторая в Европе после нашей, которую восемь лет готовили. So very different uh, language depending on when it's second of February. We'll crush Ukraine, we'll take Kiev, and then a few days ago we're facing the second strongest army in Europe. So the assumption that Russia is going to win is based on three elements. First, on the myth of World War II. They conveniently forgot that in World War II Russia fought on the side of the greatest economic power. Now it is fighting against. So here are photos of uh, Soviet soldiers on American Studebakers. So there are many talks of uh, Russian military reforms. However, Efficiency maximizer Sudyarov made interest groups angry. He was fired. His successor was a court maxer and PR maxer, more interested in building his personality cult than the army. And he talked of the Syrian war where Russia got so much experience proving its fighting capacity. Putin believed it. Russian generals believed in it. Western experts believed in it. Only Russian soldiers didn't. February 26, a Wagner... Mercenary debunked a myth of real combat experience that the Russian army got in Syria. Aviation got real experience, air defense too, but the land troops did not. Those who expect a victorious march through Ukraine are wrong. Ukraine got much stronger since 2015. So, However, Russian army advertised itself during the Syrian operation, troops not gaining combat experience. They're not seeing action. Они не участвуют в боях. То есть они получают опыт пребывания на территории, на которой вот идет война. Вот это, вот, ну, это же сомнительный ну, как бы Он непосредственно не имеет отношения к понятию боевой опыт. Реального боевого опыта они там не получают. И причем я возьму на себя смелость. Вот, все. Ну, за исключением там летчика ПВО. Ну, своя специфика, свою направленность, вот они там какую-то практику получают. А вот все представители сухопутных войск там не, не получают качественного боевого опыта. Даже такую смелость высказывают даже ССУ. Не, она не получает боевого опыта. And Iranian supply caravans through a desert where it's difficult to set up an ambush unnoticed. In Syria, Russians learned that convoying caravans is easy. Now they try to repeat the Syrian experience in Ukraine, being used to convoying caravans through deserts. They now convoy them through forests and residential areas. There they get into ambushes and are frequently.
That's why the Russian military is so pessimistic about their perspective in Ukraine. For 29 days, Russia didn't achieve strategic success on any direction. My worst fears came true. We got involved in a long, bloody, and very dangerous war. Special operation has been going for 29 days. We didn't achieve strategic success on any direction of the attack. Moreover, the enemy is relatively successful mobilizing о чем, естественно, Коношенков мухом не рывом То есть, к сожалению, я констатирую, что мои самые пессимистические прогнозы о том, что на мы тянемся в кровавый тени толкай, длительный, изнуряющий и чрезвычайно опасный для Российской Федерации, оправдались полностью на данный This is why Russia is losing so many generals, why are they even being present on the front line, because Russia is losing and Putin knows it. He is furious. He is sending his generals to the front line to take direct control to improve the situation, and there they get killed. Putin launched a war expecting a quick victory. Russian propaganda leaflets boasted that Kiev was going to be captured in one day. So Russia was convinced that the Ukrainians would not resist. What consequences will it bring for Russia? Putin won't be able to reach a result the Russian people will view as a victory. Any treaty will mark Russian defeat. That's why the smarter ones, the Russian elites, are trying to get off the sinking ship. The 1990s, St. Petersburg liberal economist designed Russian privatization. He purposefully organized it in a most shady and non-transparent way to create lots of rich people owing everything to the regime. That's how oligarchs' fortunes were created. By the late 1990s, crony systemic liberals got tired of democracy. They didn't want parliament. They didn't want public politics. They wanted a czar who would defend them from public opinion, which hated them. So they chose Putin and boosted him out of nothing. 2010, Chubais turned to Russian ethno-nationalism. He funded nationalist media such as Sputnik and Pogrom, who advocated building the Russia for Russians in these borders. He's personally responsible for building oligarchy, Putinism, and jingoist delusions in Russia. Sadly, any other living person who bears so much peace from the United Russia ruling party already can't leave the country without permission. Only smarter ones who escaped before the prohibition are now safe abroad. Others are trapped in Moscow. Now let's finally outline a scenario of collapse. First, sanctions will destroy its technological and supply chains. Russia is not self-sufficient. It's not an evil empire, but a trade federation totally dependent on technological support. Machinery is the first victim of sanctions. It uses foreign components on all levels from microchips to bearings. Now sanctions are destroying military industry, transport and communication lines, and the production of consumer goods. They are breaking Russia apart. Sanctions won't make Putin back off. They won't make the Russian people rebel. That'd be a collective action of a huge scale, which isn't going to happen. They'll undermine Russian military efforts and incentivize a much smaller scale, easier to do collective action, such as local separatism. Start with the military industry. It's the main consumer precision manufacturing industrial machines in Russia. Annexation of Crimea was a major blow on Russian military industry. So Russian tanks started having problems with their component supply immediately after 2014. Thus, new types of Russian, Russian weaponry were never mass-produced. Mass production was supposed to commence in 2015, but in 2022, it still hadn't because of the sanctions. Electronic components, 
that were imported, transmissions were imported, everything stopped after the invasion of Crimea. Russia lost many technological competencies and capacities it used to have under the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, a job of an engineer was prestigious and highly paid. Military engineers were kings. Now they're losers with no respect and no salary. Construction bureaus and engineering institutions didn't get new competent engineers. Average age of an engineer in tank industry is now around 60 years of age. That means the old engineers are dying and retiring. Too few capable youngsters to learn from them. So many competences of old engineers dying with them. No wonder that all the production on a certain brand of tanks, the Uravongazov, is now stopped. Old sanctions introduced in 2014 didn't allow to develop the new innovative tanks. New sanctions in 2022 don't allow to build any tanks at all. Russian military industry is fully reliant. I'm curious about is why is the Biden administration so uninterested in any kind of peace deal between Ukraine and, and Russia? Because the longer this conflict goes on, the, the longer the chance of nuclear weapons. Well, we've kind of known for a few weeks now, which is what the broad contours of what a peace deal would look like, which is there's three main pieces. Neutrality for Ukraine. The Russians insist that it not be part of NATO. They get to keep Crimea, which they annexed in 2014. That's been a fait accompli. And then some version of independence for these um, sort of breakaway territories in eastern Ukraine, the, in the Donbass region. Everyone kind of knows that's the, the, the broad strokes of the deal. Then there's, you know, a lot of details are going to matter a lot to the people who live there. Like, is there this land bridge from Crimea to Donbass? But frankly, don't matter as much to all of us, the United States of America. So the question is, you know, what, what is the administration going to do about it? Biden just went to Europe. No one in Washington, and I talked about this last week, seems to be pushing for a ceasefire. Yeah, that's kind of curious. Why is no one pushing for a ceasefire in the Biden administration? So then Biden says something incredibly stupid. He says Putin cannot remain in power. So he gives this big sweeping speech on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then says Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. Essentially, the United States supports regime change in Russia. And there's this widespread fantasy that if we just got a new leader of Russia, that these problems would go away. Well, you could, that, that's not true. It's just as likely, if not more likely, that the next leader of Russia will be even more militarily adventurous, more aggressive, more hostile to the West than, than Putin, because it's the structure of international relations and of Russia's situation, both geographically and demographically, which strongly incentivizes this kind of aggressive, assertive uh, military invasion of Ukraine and uh, where they might roll onto next, who knows. But it's the structure of the international situation that is incentivizing uh, Russia to go on the offensive. Putin isn't that important, right? It's not because Putin's a crazy man that we have this Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's Russia responding to geopolitical incentives to try to increase its protection and to try to place itself in a better position to survive its coming uh, demographic collapse. Then Joe Biden says Russian leader Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. That's just crazy talk, and the administration quickly walked it back. But a uh, number of times Biden says something stupid, right? Whenever he goes off script, it seems like he, he says stupid things, and this was 
a real humdinger. It seems like their preferred position is for Russia to bleed out as as long as possible in Ukraine for the U.S. to fund an insurgency a la Afghanistan. The, the question is, what's the administration's endgame here? Do they want to lead the world to a ceasefire or do they want to protract the conflict to impose on the Russian state a Afghan-style debilitating defeat to destabilize the Russian regime? Neil Ferguson had a column this week in um, it's his Bloomberg column. The U.S. intends to keep this war going. The administration will continue to supply. So the United States largely stayed out of World War One, World War Two, until the last minute, until the circumstances forced their intervention, and so they let all the other great powers bleed and die. And then the U.S. came in towards the end of these conflicts. And we're able to mop up and have you know, relatively low, low cost and massive world victories. And so the United States and the Biden administration is apparently uh, pursuing a deliberate policy of just allowing Russia to bleed and allowing Ukrainians to bleed because this will remove Russia from the great powers. So right now there are three major powers in the world. There's the United States, China and Russia. After this invasion, there'll really only be China and the United States. The Ukrainians with anti-aircraft stingers, anti-tank javelins, explosive switchblade drones, it will uh, keep trying to persuade other NATO governments to supply heavier defensive weaponry, and so on. Uh, he says Washington will revert to the Afghanistan after 19... 19- okay, uh, this is what I noticed. A lot of uh, dissident right people, including people I know in synagogue, people I know online... They have Ricardo's view, there is no war in Ukraine, it's all memes. It's simply not true, but people have become disillusioned with the mainstream media, and so there's an instinctive distrust of everything the mainstream media says, but then an acceptance of what you know, certain dissidents take. Well, I think you should use the you know, same skepticism and same critical thinking when you read an article in the New York Times or when you read one on UN's Review or when you, you know, read a tweet or some dissident podcast, right? We need critical thinking and perspective for whatever sources of information. There's clearly a war going on in Ukraine. We've never had such a displacement of people. Like two and a half million Ukrainians have left. That's, that's not faked. 1979 playbook of supplying an insurgency only if the Ukrainian government loses the conventional war. So the concern here is that the U.S. And uh, Ricardo says the dissident worldview has higher predictive value. I'm not sure. I used to think that, and now I'm not so sure anymore. So the the dissident perspective on COVID was that it was it was just the flu, and I don't think that turned out to be true. We've got about 20 million excess deaths, according to the Economist. So I think the the elites, the the mainstream, were more right about COVID than the dissidents. On voter fraud, dissidents said there was massive voter fraud in the U.S. 2020 election. Uh, no evidence for that. So far, it looks like the elites and the mainstream are right about that. Uh, dissidents have been strong that the West, in particular the United States, Great Britain, needs uh, less third world immigration. And I think uh, the dissidents are right about that and the elites and the mainstream are wrong. Uh, dissidents say that uh, it's obvious that different peoples have different gifts, and there I think the dissidents are right, and the mainstream, that uh, all people just have all the same type of gifts, that uh, 
obviously the, the dissidents are right there and the mainstream are wrong. U.S. government has an incentive, actually, that they don't want a quick end to this war, is basically the theory, is they want the Russian state to bleed out and be destabilized. It's a, in, in a way, it's the one chance we have for like regime change there without us actually starting a war is that they have this self-inflicted wound. That is the theory. Yeah, and I think a lot of people... And regime change isn't going to do anything, right? You get a new leader over Putin, there's no objective reason to believe that it's highly likely he is going to be more pro-West and more pro-peace than, than Putin because the structural situation of Russia is that it's now or never for expanding its borders and protecting itself from future invasion. People are saying that. That is what a lot of people want in Washington. I don't, you know, this is not like conspiracy theory. People are saying this is our chance to topple the Russian state, to destabilize it. There was a RAND Corporation how, how do you survey done that a few a, years ago. Hold on, there's yeah. a RAND Corporation study done a few years ago that was commissioned by somebody, probably in our State Department or someone like that, where they talked about this, that if we want to destabilize the Russian regime, Ukraine is the way to do it. Right. They would fall for it, right? They would actually fight that fight. That is an unwinnable fight. We'd be supporting an Afghanistan-like path for them to go down like we did. And they did right. previously to that. The problem that I see is just this, which is we've discussed on, on this program the downsides of this war. First, it's a humanitarian disaster. Second, we've talked about the risks of recession later in the year. Third, Freeberg talked about famine, the risk of famine later this year if the spring planning doesn't happen. And then fourth, we have this always we have this risk that the war spins out of control and goes nuclear, right, and leads into World War III. Those are some vital American interests to avoid all of those scenarios. I don't see an equivalent vital American interest in determining the exact nuances of who rules the Donbass. In other words, the broad strokes of this agreement are there. You know, what the U.S. should be doing is leading. They should be pushing for lead, not bleed, lead the way to a ceasefire, not to inflict maximum damage on the Russian regime. Which we don't know exactly what their intent is because they're doing this behind closed doors. We do not have a vital national interest in the details of who rules, rules the Donbass. Yeah, the problem with your setting up of that question is that we did not start the war. Putin did. Chamathi, you've been silent so far. What are your thoughts on this war that Putin Jason, I'm started? not saying we started the war. Well, okay. you're saying, did we wake up and say that we should do this? We did not. Listen, Putin you, you put woke his up troops on, on the border. You and a lot of other people in the media woke up on February 24th, and you think Putin went mad, and there's no prehistory to this conflict. Now, here's no, the I deal. Don't. Hold on a second. This is a war of Russian aggression. It's true that Putin started it. He's the invader. However, there were things we could have done to prevent or to avoid this war. And American diplomacy completely failed. And we even discussed it the month before. Right. If I sleep with your wife and then you punch me in the face, I guess in one sense you're the instigator of a physical conflict. But I did things that significantly incentivized you to punch me in the face. So the West did all sorts of things to significantly incentivize Russia to invade Ukraine. In the end, yes, Russia had uh, agency. They had the choice whether or not to invade Ukraine. It appears right now that it was a disastrous choice. But the West by pushing right up to the Russian borders with uh, NATO and with NATO-aligned countries. Ukraine is essentially an ally of NATO, right? Ukraine is part of NATO in everything but official effect. And so the Rus Russia responded to certain incentives that the West created. Now, the West may think that uh, by creating these incentives and by baiting 
Putin into invading Ukraine, that it will destroy Putin and it will destroy Russia. And that may well turn out to be a great policy, or it could turn out to be the end of the world as we know it. Before this war started, we talked about how the U.S. could have given a written guarantee to Russia that Ukraine would not be part of NATO. Just this week, Zelensky, in an interview with Fried Zakaria, admitted he was told by Blinken, you will not be part of NATO, but we don't want to admit that publicly. What games were they playing? What is the point of playing that kind of game with the grave issue of war and peace? Why didn't Blinken say publicly what he said to Zelensky? This administration did not. Well, the reason he didn't say it publicly is because it's the Biden administration's official policy not to encourage peace between Ukraine and Russia, but to exacerbate conflict and war. Do everything it could do to prevent war. And now we are faced with all of these existential risks. Why? For what reason? The Russian military, the tweet that I sent you guys was from the Russian military, and that was an official statement. And I don't think he, they would be allowed without Putin's explicit sign-off. They no longer talked about denazificating Ukraine or demilitarizing Ukraine. They simply focused it on the Donbass. And to use your Sun Tzu argument, it's almost like they're trying to construct their own golden bridge to exit in a way where they can claim victory to the Russian people to explain the tens of thousands of you know Russian military people that have been killed in, in this whole conflict, right? Because they have an explanation that they have to give. But in, in all of this, I think that we're, we're uh, probably exposing a very high-risk game of poker that we're playing, which is it seems that the U.S. government is focused more on the destabilization of of Russia than they are in getting this conflict behind us. I mean, he did, he did say in his speech, since time immemorial, the people living in the Southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians. That's Donbass. Yeah, I know, but he is... There's been a, Jason, there's been a civil war going on since 2014 in this Donbass region between Ukrainians and these sort of, these Russian speakers. And now that civil war is, as this is a Balkan-style civil war that has now escalated with, you know, Ukraine and Russia getting in, and now the whole West potentially could get in. This is a very dangerous situation that we should not let spin out of control. I'm agreeing with that. You guys asked me, did he ever talk about reunification? He did. I, I don't know that Putin can expect the sanctions to be lifted or that he can effectively negotiate for that. I think, again, where I think the the, the peace deal is, is that it, we've known all along what it's going to be. Ukraine will agree to neutrality in exchange for some security guarantees. Right. We, we, could have, we could have accomplished this last fall and completely avoided the war. But the Biden administration thought it was in the world's best, well, in America's best interest, in Biden's best interest to have this war in Ukraine. From the West, Russia will get to keep Crimea because that's been a fait accompli since the annexation in 2014. And there will be some sort of regional autonomy for these sort of Russian-speaking areas in the Donbass, uh, which, by the way, we could have had that too. There was a, a deal called Minsk II since 2015 that simply hasn't been implemented. You know, I think that those are the broad strokes of the deal. And then there's questions about, well, is there a land bridge from Crimea to the Donbass? And, you know, what weapons exactly does Ukraine get to get from the United States or get to keep? I mean, so look, those details matter a lot to the people who live there. But the broad strokes of this, I think, are pretty well understood. If both sides keep asking, I agree with that fundamental analysis is that neither Putin nor Zelensky can be trusted on their own uh, to basically make peace because they want to push their advantage. If either one believes that they're winning on the battlefield, they're going to push their advantage to grab as much as they can to then negotiate from a position of greater strength. The problem is that they're in an escalatory spiral 
where if you know one or both of them miscalculate, we never get that deal. And I think the longer the war drags on, the right. Zelensky says the choice is between uh, what victory for Ukraine or World War Three. Right? He he's he's got the power to bring us into World War Three. Harder it is to make a deal, not easier. One of the I have to say one of the disturbing things that came out over the past week was in that interview that I mentioned uh, where Fareed Zakaria interviewed Zelensky. Zelensky said, he said that it's, we're either going to get a peace deal or World War III. And I'm listening to this thinking, wait a second, um, you know, that, that is a pretty scary posture for him to be taking. And furthermore, who appointed him leader of the free world? You know, the decision to have World War III is not his decision. He is not the president of the United States. We did not vote for him. We may think he's heroic. We may think he deserves our support, but he does not get to turn this into World War III for us. The American people did not choose that. And this is where I go back to Biden and the administration and their leadership. What are they pushing for? Are they pushing for a protracted, never-ending Afghan-style war in Ukraine, or are they going to lead the situation to some sort of negotiation or ceasefire? And I just think if we're considering the interests of the United States, we would not let this decision purely be Zelensky's. This guy's willing to entertain World War III. Well, I think what we should be pushing for right now is have Zelensky on the Oscars. I mean, I think that's the critical issue for today. Will Zelensky show up on the Oscars? Right. This is a conversation from the Hoover Institute got H.R. McMaster, Donald Trump's former national security advisor, and uh, Matt Pottinger is the guest. Matt was a former journalist for the Wall Street Journal and then took a position in the Trump administration. And uh, Neil Ferguson is also on the lower left here. It was the driving force behind the most significant Talking shift in U.S. Matt foreign Pottinger. policy since the end of the Cold War, and that's the shift in our approach to China from cooperation and engagement to transparent competition. But hey, welcome, Matt. It's, it's great to be with you. HR, it's great to be with you. Uh, I, I, I give you credit for, for forcing that, uh, that shift uh, with the national security strategy that, uh, that, that you uh, bulldogged through and, uh, and that President Trump signed in his first year in office. It was a real landmark. But it's great to be with you and, and with John and with Neil. And, you know, we could talk about a lot, right? And Matt's, you know, Matt has a, a long history of, of service, service to our nation as a, as a Marine in Iraq and Afghanistan, and service as a journalist for a, quite a long time in, in China as well, and he was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. But Matt, there's probably nobody better for, than to maybe begin our discussion today uh, on, on, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, but really especially how this this catastrophe for the, the, the Ukrainian people, the, the war there. Uh, and Russian aggression relates uh, to to what Xi Jinping is doing. There, the relationship between between China and and Russia, and and what do you think China is, is thinking about this war, learning from this war, reacting to this war? Yeah, I I think there's little doubt that Xi Jinping uh, is underwriting the war. Right, he's providing diplomatic cover for it. Okay, uh, Ricardo says in the chat, is Zelensky the leader of the secular Jewish world? No, he is right now a widely popular and revered leader of Ukraine who, who happens to be Jewish, but he doesn't, Zelensky doesn't have deep ties to 
uh, Jewish life around the world. Uh, would Ukraine matter so much to blue checks if he were a Gentile? Yes, I think uh, Ukraine would matter just as much. And it would take World War Three for Ukraine to win. Well, I guess it all depends on how you define win, but you would ex you'd expect it's going to take many, many years for them to recover the damage that Ukraine has just been wrecked by this war that uh, over two and a half million Ukrainians have left the country and I don't think they're coming back. So if if uh, there's some kind of peace deal reach, I, I, I don't see how you can spin that as a win. And this probably could have all been avoided if the West and Ukraine had given a guarantee that uh, Ukraine would not join NATO. Uh, propaganda cover. He's blocking initiatives all over the world. Even the upcoming G20 meeting, the Chinese are working overtime to try to prevent the G20 from even discussing the war that's taking place in Europe. Uh, and, I, and I think that uh, they probably won't be able to help themselves uh, and will end up providing financial support uh, for the war and perhaps uh, military material uh, for the for the Russian uh, campaign uh, to destroy Ukraine if they can't have it. <laughs> uh, so um, so I, I think that's one thing we need to be clear about. I think that's obvious at this point. So destroying Ukraine would be in Russia's geostrategic interest because it intimidates people who want to mess with Russia. It says we can be brutal, we can, we can destroy you, we can trash you. And uh, it's, it's a very powerful signal. So it's not necessarily in the country's geostrategic interest to be all filled with love and peace and dope with regard to other nations. So Bismarck, the former leader of Germany in the late 19th century, he said that he had complete sympathy for Polish nationalism, but if it was ever acted upon, Germany would crush it because a strong Poland was not in Germany's strategic interest. So to a strong Ukraine that is friendly and oriented towards the West is not in Russia's geostrategic interest. So having weak neighbors is generally in your strategic interest. Canada and Mexico are weak neighbors. They don't threaten the United States. And the United States is blessed by having weak neighbors. Not surprising that uh, Russia wants weak neighbors as well. One thing that makes China so vulnerable is that it is surrounded by very strong neighbors who hate it. So China's in a much more difficult part of the world than the United States. In spite of Chinese, uh, uh, you know, disinformation and, and uh, double mouth diplomacy that's trying to cast them as somehow a, a neutral player here. What's also clear is that they have miscalculated, just like Vladimir Putin miscalculated uh, uh, thinking that this would be an easy war. Um, I think that Xi Jinping um, trusted Putin's instincts and, and made the same miscalculation and that there is a lesson in this uh, with respect to Taiwan. If you read a lot of the People's Liberation Army doctrine, if you look at comments that they're making to one another in their conferences, in their publications, um, everything rests on the idea that uh, an invasion of Taiwan would be quick and neat and decisive and that it would all be wrapped up and tied up with a bow before the United States could even get his trousers on. Uh, so I, the, if I were a war planner in, sitting in Beijing or in one of the, uh, uh, you know, the combatant commands down on, on the southeast coast of China, um, I, I'd be staying up a little bit later at night and, and sweating a little, a, a little heavier on, on some of the baseline assumptions that seem to be uh, showing 
some of the baseline assumptions that seem to suggest that Beijing thinks a Taiwan war would be easy. Uh, that said, that doesn't mean that they're not going to do a war. Uh, there's only one guy who's going to decide, and his name is Xi Jinping. Uh, and um, he is someone who is tying himself tighter to, to Putin right now. He's someone who, very much like Putin, spent his entire career climbing this ladder to amass immense power and, and, and is not going to waste it. Uh, these are guys who are now, you know, who were patient in accumulating power and, and are now very impatient. Okay, Ricardo says geopolitical analysis is the milieu of uh, blowhards. Uh, yes, of course it is, because it's the milieu of men. And what do men love to do? Men love to share their views of the world. Because when men share their opinions, they're sharing two things that are of vital importance to them. They're sharing where they get their information, which information sources they regard as strong incredible and what their values are what they stand for what they see as right and wrong so essentially to be a man is to speak up and to share your views of, of what's going on around you and taking some kind of leadership position now of course many people will be fatuous and many people will be foolish and uh, some people will be wise and many of us will be you know, some combination of fatuous foolish and and wise and uh, mundane but uh I can't think of, of many better occupations for men in, in their spare time. What should they do instead? Should they uh, devote their their mental faculties to football draft, NFL draft analysis, to video game analysis, to you know reaching a higher level on, on some video game, to perfecting techniques for seducing women? I mean, I think, yeah, making money, that's, that's for most people probably a better use of time than uh, geopolitical analysis. But there, there's the rare type of personality whose primary interest is the truth. I mean, I'm primarily interested in what is true. And it doesn't have to come with an immediate economic or status or, or female uh, reward. I'm interested in ideas. I'm interested in what is true. And that's what intellectuals do. They sit around and argue about what is true, what is the nature of reality. What is the nature of the good? And one aspect of that is COVID. And I think that if you had to pick a single metric by which to measure the ultimate impact of the COVID pandemic, probably excess mortality is as good as we're going to get. Quote from David Wallace Wells here writing for New York Magazine, what a single metric tells us about the pandemic. So The Economist has a database which estimates global excess mortality from COVID. It puts the figure over 20 million. So this is an extrapolation of an academic survey that uh, puts the number of COVID deaths at about 3.7 times the number of reported deaths. So certainly this metric has its limits, but what's better than that? So a year ago, it was easy to divide the pandemic outcomes into three groups with Europe and the Americas performing far worse than East Asia. Uh, but generally speaking, doing better than Latin America. But now a crude count of official deaths suggests the same grouping. So North America and Europe have almost identical death counts with official per capita totals eight times as high as Asia, 12 times as high as Africa. South America's death toll is higher still, 10 times as high as Asia and 15 times as high as Africa. So you're probably wondering, Forty, where did you get this amazing new jacket? It's just, just so form-fitting. It's just so flattering. Where did you get it? And the answer is, I took a chance. All right, I was vulnerable. 
I spent $86 on Amazon and I bought a suit on Amazon and I was concerned, oh, it's not going to fit. Then I'll have to send it back or I'll have to get it tailored. And what a what an aggravation. And so when I, it's uh, from some Asian place and so I, I put in my measurements there on Amazon and it says, just get a medium. So I ordered a medium black suit and it fits. I can't believe it. I spent $86 on a medium black suit and it fits. And like, look at this. Look at this. Okay. But uh, if you look at uh, excess mortality, right, there's no other event in the past two years that would, that would account for significant excess mortality aside from COVID. And now with excess mortality data, we still have a fairly clear continent by continent pattern but the gaps between them are much smaller. So the experiences of different parts of the world are less distinct, and they tell a more universal story about the devastation wrought by this once-in-a-century contagion. So according to The Economist, Europe, Latin America, and North America have all registered excess deaths ranging from 270 to 370 per 100,000 inhabitants. Excess mortality in Asia is estimated to be about 130 to 330, and in Africa the range is 79 to 220. So these numbers are not identical, but all things considered, they are remarkably close together. So the highest of the low-end estimates is barely three times the lowest. Then if you adjust for age, because obviously older people are far more vulnerable to COVID, I don't know what it's like to broadcast now without having to constantly check that my sound is still coming through. So I made, I made, made some changes. I did some research. Why was my mic constantly uh, cutting out while I was using Streamlabs and adjusted some settings and now my mic doesn't seem to cut out anymore let's have a look at the chat are ukrainians white i never liked eastern europeans says ricardo setting your worldview is the height of masculinity yeah I, I i think it is uh making money taking care of your family uh, developing yourself and uh developing a worldview I think, yeah, that, that's the height of masculinity. Bring back the shades, Luke. Okay. So back to this article in New York Magazine. So if you adjust for age, right, older people are obviously far more vulnerable to death from COVID than younger people. The differences among the continents uh, grows more dramatic. So Europe and North America are among the best at the world at preventing deaths among the old. They were several times better at protecting their elderly than Africa and South Asia. East Asia performed only slightly better than the United States and Europe. Canada is in line with China. Germany is marginally worse than South Korea. Iceland in the range of Japan. So the worst hit country in the world with COVID was not the United States, which registered the most official deaths of any country, but ranks 47th in per capita excess mortality. Britain ranks 85th, India ranks 36th, but it's Russia, which is estimated, according to the economists, to lose between 1.2 and 1.3 million citizens over the course of the pandemic, a mortality rate twice as high as the American one. So Eastern Europe has the ugliest excess mortality data. Now, in 2021... Uh, the U.S. has done really bad with, with COVID deaths. So in 2020, the U.S. was about average among its OECD peers. 
So that's the Organization of uh, Developed Economies. But in 2021, uh, the U.S. did much, much worse. So in Europe, the pandemic killed just a fraction as many as it had killed before the, U- the year before. In the U.S., 2021, more Americans died of COVID than the year before. So prior to 2021, it was possible to defend the American record as merely just below average. Now it is cataclysmically bad, which is both outrageous and ironic given that it is largely American vaccine innovation that has changed the pandemic landscape for the rest of the world, at least for the rest of the rich world. So after Joe Biden took office, there were 178 excess deaths per 100,000 inhabitants, basically the same as Britain's, Belgium's, and Portugal's. Fast forward a year, the U.S. now has 330 excess deaths per 100,000. Our total has doubled in Britain. Excess mortality grew only 30%. In Portugal, it was 17%. So if the U.S. had the same cumulative excess mortality of Germany, it would have had 600,000 fewer deaths. So how did this happen? Uh, That two-thirds of Americans got both shots of the vaccine, but one-third didn't. And then over the last six months, uh, very few people got the booster shot. Only 29% of Americans have had a booster shot, which puts us behind Slovenia, Slovakia, and Poland. So less than half of those people happy to get vaccinated a year ago chosen to get a third shot through Delta and Omicron. So booster campaigns were an obvious opportunity for easy public health gains, yet few Americans seem to think they were worth the trouble. So I've got another overarching theory of life. I love overarching theories of life. And this one is something that I've, I've had on and off over the years, but it's just becoming increasingly clear to me that how, how do you make decisions in life about how you spend your spare time. Should you spend more time in church or less time? Should you become you know, religious or become an atheist? Should you take up yoga? Uh, should you take up jogging? Should you take up video gaming? And my answer is whatever gives you more smooth, sustained energy. Wow, it sounds like uh, some dogs being strangled out there. What the hell? Come on, guys, I'm trying to... You're blessed by my superior sound technology. You don't have to listen to this screeching dog. I'm trying to run a show here, man. It's it's distracting me. So I try to. I know you're in a lot of pain and aggravation right now, but but please, I'm I'm imparting these valuable insights into life. So I notice some people they become religious, and it gives gives rain to a whole new burst of energy and excitement. I'm talking about smooth energy, so that your thoughts. Are not jangly and jarry and uh, contradictory and knocking you all over the place, but they're, they're smooth and your ability to operate in the world is smooth and your relationship with yourself is smooth, your relationship with other people is smooth. So I'm talking about that kind of smooth emotional energy that uh, comes from you know, living living a life that's good for you. So yeah, what, what supplements to take? You know, Find out which, which uh, perhaps increase your energy, even if it's only the placebo effect uh, you know, it's all good as long as there's no no, no side effects if a uh, particular placebo uh, it gives you increased energy. So I was watching comedian Jimmy Carr on Jordan Peterson's podcast. And for Jimmy Carr, becoming an atheist seemed to unleash energy. Was, was part of what, what, what I view humor as. I think it's a, it's a, a, a methodology for making things okay, for, for lightening the mood for mm-hmm. uh, you know I, it, for me it's kind of a panacea i mean I, i'm i'm ultimately i'm self-medicating with humor okay so self-medicating 
what? Is there a better way to go about it? So how in the world did you come about the decision to leave your job? And and you also mentioned cognitive behavior therapy in there, that that you did something that that brought this. I went went and did, uh, actually, when you work for a large company like Shell, there's a um, there's a training budget every year that they assign to their staff members. So if you work on the oil rigs, it's all health and safety training. I was working in a fancy office in central London, so there was no need for any health and safety stuff. It was all fine. The most dangerous thing was the coffee in the coffee machine. So for me, I could go and do with, with that kind of those courses in those days that they gave us. I went and did some NLP training with a guy. Okay, so Jimmy Carr's an atheist. He's seen through the BS of religion but he buys into the nonsense of neuro-linguistic programming. You know, one of these kind of corporate away day things. And I got exposed to NLP and just went, oh, this is phenomenal. I'd lost. Yeah, it's as it's phenomenal as the technology in Scientology. So Jimmy Carr becomes you know, this rationalist atheist, but he buys into neuro-linguistic programming, looking at the Cyclopedia Britannic uh, Wikipedia entry here. NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, is a pseudoscientific approach to communication, personal development, and psychotherapy. There's no scientific evidence supporting the claims made by NLP advocates. It's been discredited as a pseudoscience. But I'm sure even a pseudoscience and something that's total bollocks like NLP, it can release energy, just like I think Scientology training probably released energy and was a positive force for some people. Yeah, for some people, probably some degree of interaction with Scientology has you know, unleashed their, their energy. I lost my religious faith on a trip to um, uh, Israel. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. They lost their religious faith on a trip to Israel because they go to Israel, they go to Jerusalem, and they see all these very intense religions with completely contradictory understandings about what God wants. Somewhat ironically, the scales had fallen from my eyes, and I kind of went, well, if I'm right about Christianity... Everyone else is wrong. That fundamental kind of, um, it's kind of a, t- a tiny pebble in my shoe had become a boulder and I just couldn't live with it anymore. And I, I, I slowly over about a year long period lost my faith. And then I found NLP and I, I, I kind of thought, I, I basically latched onto another belief structure and the idea that the map is not the- Right, so th- there's as much evidence for the validity of NLP as there is for the evidence of any of the world's major religions. Territory. The idea that um, who, who, how you perceive the world is how the world is. We see the world not as it is, but how we are. The idea that, you know, um, I suppose disposition is more important than position. And it's very difficult to change your disposition, but it's so much easier than changing the world. And I kind of, I, I suddenly, everything through being exposed to that became possible. But the possibilities became like, well, fundamentally, my belief became anything anyone else can do, I can do. Which is and that's nonsense. incredibly empowering and it's scary and you're suddenly not leading your life. Yeah, we have, we're born with certain predispositions. So there are some things where Jimmy Carr can achieve at a high level, but there are all sorts of areas where I assure you that there are people who can do things that Jimmy Carr can't come close to doing. For the next, for the, for the afterlife. You, I mean, I've still got a huge belief in the next life, but not the afterlife. That the precision of that phrase, I think the the allegories of religion, I still enjoy, but I just don't. Ha- I don't believe them literally. 
And uh, Half Galician says, I'm not interacting with the chat. And this is a red flag. Well, I'm interacting quite a lot with the chat. I'm not interacting with Half Galician's comments. Because he keeps referring me to a clip that I cannot play on the show, right? A copyrighted clip from a movie. I can't play clips from movies on the show without risking, you know, copyright problems. Did I see uh, UCLA lose? Uh, no, the game was on Shabbos, but uh, I'm, I'm bearing up the best I can. Bernard Brightson is in America, folks. Luke is blessed with an off-the-rack physique. <laughs> hey, I'm uh, walking and biking about 10 miles a day, so doing, uh, doing about uh, 200 push-ups every other day. So I'm steadily ramping up thanks to my beef organ supplements. Half Galician. I stopped leaving the Rebbe and started following Tony Roberts. Yeah, I noticed a lot of people doing that. So or I know a lot of people who believe both in the Rebbe and in Tony Robbins. Yeah, Half Galician needs to get in the game. When is he coming on the show? Right? When is he willing to become man in the arena? All right, it's uh, it's one thing to stand back and to critique, right? But it's not the critic who counts. It's uh, it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? Who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails by daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat? That's uh, Theodore Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena, quote, beloved by Tom Brady. So we called his, his 10-part uh, ESPN documentary series man in the arena so yeah whether or not you should go on youtube how active you should be on social media whether you should start a blog right depends on how that will contribute or not contribute to your levels of energy for some people getting up early every morning going to daf yomi which is a page of talmud study going to minion wrapping on to fillin be a tremendous source of energy other people would be better served uh, going to a 12-step meeting every morning other people would be better served going to a yoga class every morning but our energy primarily comes from our interactions with others. Even when we're on our own, right? We're thinking about what we about other people, our interactions with others, what we'll be talking about with others, how we've learned from other people. So our energy comes from successfully interacting with others, creating a shared reality with other people by being on the same page, getting into rhythm, creating a shared reality, developing a bond, and out of that bond always comes an ethic. So that is where energy comes from relationships with other people. So I'm reading uh, Jimmy Carr's memoir. He just uh, published a book, Before I Go With Laughter. So he talks about the superpowers that uh, stand-up comics have. One is communication. And the key thing with communication is that uh, the comic is 10% on send and 90% on receive. Comedians are constantly listening and observing, whether to our audience or simply to the world around us. We're always on alert. Second, timing. It's not 
only about what you're saying, it's about when you're saying it. Third, we have patent recognition. So I think everyone listening to this show believes strongly in patent recognition. So what comedians do is look at the patterns in life and draw analogies. Patent recognition has always been the key to survival for all living things. If it wasn't for patent recognition, we'd have to start from scratch every time something slightly new comes along. Comics get so good at patent recognition that they're able to mess with the patterns, and patterns are what the jokes are. Sudden revelation of a previously concealed fact. Then, next superpower is honesty, right? There's a brutal honesty with comics when they get together. <laughs> That's true. Like, if you have some kind of deformity, or if you're abnormally tall, or short, or skinny, or fat, or you know, you're good-looking, ugly, if you're awkward, whatever your shortcoming is, if you're a comic, it's going to get pointed out to you, or if you're a live streamer. I think all these superpowers of comedians would also apply to capable live streamers. Because when you stand up and deliver your opinions and your face is there and your, your name is there and you're putting yourself on the line, then you will get pushback, all right? And if you look funny, sound funny, have you know, various vulnerabilities, people will push on them as you trigger them with what you're saying. So if you're a good live streamer, you probably have an above average level of, of self-awareness because anything that's wrong with you, other people are going to point it out. And uh, what's, the, what's the next oh, superpower? Failure, right? Every great comic is Captain Failure because uh, you're, you're always creating jokes that uh, don't work and then you try to learn from it. So the idea of going, there is a next life. Of course there's a next life. You move through phases. Um, I'm a father now and I, I'm, I'm you know, in my late 40s. I'm a very different person than the person that started on this road 25 years ago to being a comedian. I, you know, there's the, every molecule in my body has changed. Of course, I'm a different person. There's, there's a next life, literally. But, but the afterlife, it struck me that the afterlife was a way of the ultimate in procrastination. And it struck me that religious belief was very good for the tribe, not great for the individual. And in our society at the moment, maybe there's a... It's, it's an interesting thing going on at the moment where we've, the pendulum has swung too far to the individual and there's not enough tribal thinking going on. Okay, let's get back to analysis here from Matt Pottinger. In wielding it. It, Neil touched on a lot of these topics in, uh, in, in his weekly uh, column, uh, which I, you know, which I, which I recommend the Bloomberg column. And Neil, you're, you're also the guy who kind of first coined this phrase of Cold War II. Hey, anybody who is denying it, right? I mean, I, I think now it's quite obvious, right? Yeah. That this is, that this is, uh, you know, a Cold War that, that maybe everybody has to acknowledge because of the hot war, right? In, in, uh, Ukraine. What, what's your, what's your assessment of this Xi Jinping, you know, Putin bromance, uh, professed love for one another? Uh, how the war is affecting that and, and what, what you anticipate is going to happen next in that relationship? Well, you will struggle to find much uh, distance between Matt, me and Matt Pottinger on these issues. I read with interest an interview that Matt did for the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend. And I actually want to get you to talk about that, Matt, because in it you, you used Cold War II as a, as a framing uh, analogy. And your argument, which I have also made, 
is that in a way this is like a kind of flipped Cold War because in Cold War One Russia's the senior partner and China is the junior partner. The first hot war happens in Asia uh, rather than in Europe. It's in Korea. And your argument, which I think is right, is that this is a little bit like the Korean War, only because everything's flipped, the hot wars in, in Europe. And I'm, I'm intrigued to explore that analogy further, because I think it's right. I think one of the things the Korean War did was to persuade Americans that the Cold War was real, because I'm very struck by the fact that the early British warnings about a Cold War, Orwell's in 1945, Churchill's in 1946, were largely ignored or dismissed by many Americans, but you couldn't really pretend that there was going to be peaceful coexistence uh, after the North Korean invasion of South Korea. So let's talk a bit about what that implies, because it struck me, and this is a point I made in the Bloomberg. Okay, let's uh, let's see who's calling. Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, blessings, Luke. Blessings. Good morning, morning blessings. Um... Where, where's where's your energy coming from these days? I hear it just radiating, resonating in your voice. Luke, I'm furious. I, I sat down. I got up early. Uh, I was going to do a big sort of work session, uh, you know, just sort of blast through a bunch of stuff I needed to get done. And then 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 Forty comes through with a link at eight in the morning. And I'm like, really? Can I resist? You know, I'm trying to resist. Please resist. Resist. And I couldn't resist. And then I start getting all this crap at work, all these Slack discussions. Like there's nothing sacred anymore. Luke. Nothing. Why, why are you working on Sunday? That that seems... Because you know why? Because I can't get any work done during the week because of all of these communication tools. I'm constantly answering questions and, and, and getting Slack messages and, and, and answering I texts. Hate and I hate just, Slack. It, I hate it. Because it just knocks you off life, your rhythm. Luke. It's so inefficient. Yes. And right now, I thought, well, if I did it on Sunday, people would have the, uh, you know, the tact, just leave me alone on Sunday. You know, but they don't. It's just 24-7. Why won't they leave Elliot alone? Leave Elliot alone. I didn't do nothing, Luke. I didn't do nothing. Why won't they leave Elliot alone? Why do they have to bother Elliot on a Sunday morning? Is nothing sacred. And then, you know, uh, you know, I got these women and, you know, I work with these women and they, they love to just talk and make just you know just make these big fights out of nothing you know yes so (laughs) they want to just drag it on and they want to bring other things and then they remember things i said that contradicted things i'm saying now and they want to talk about that yeah it's like just no that's awful it's awful luke sharia law now no it's it's you need to get a establish better working t- conditions in your job or get a new job, bro. I, I believe me, bro. I'm thinking about it. You know, it's like, but I have got such a sweet little deal here, you know, working at home and everything. It's just, it, it's amazing what I'll suffer just for that one little perk. There are a lot so, of people who work from home and don't have to put up with Slack conversations on Sunday. I know, but you know they got the they got the, the ultra high IQ, bro. I just wasn't. I don't. I, I'm not gifted in that manner. So I'm afraid. <laughs> How long have you been in this job? Uh, over five years. And how long have you been working uh, weekends? Only till very recently. Until uh, uh, well, um, 
I just thought it would be like a, you know, an occasional thing. I would do this occasionally just to sort of get caught up. But uh, it just seems that uh, people have lost their, uh, they, they, they've lost their, their, what's the word? Tact? It's not the word tact. Uh, what's the word? Like uh, boundaries. Huh? Boundaries. Sense of the task. Boundaries. Yeah. But there's uh, the propriety. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a loss of sense of propriety around what's what and when to communicate. They've just since COVID, I guess. Uh, but now, um, I, uh, I see it as a simple problem, but yes, I shouldn't be working on weekends. But the fact of the matter is, if I don't get certain things done, that becomes an, something to talk about, right? And that becomes a sense of argument, and that becomes a sense of more delay. So it's like this snowball. So either the snowball gets never gets started, or it gets to be this massive thing. So the line between you know war and peace is razor thin, Luke. It's sort of like, you know, Ukraine. Nobody is coming, this, Elliot. Nobody's coming to rescue you. If it is to be, it is up to you. Yeah, well, I know. I, I'm, I'm solving the problem. But then again, you know, there's just the part. Okay, so part two. So then you have, there are just so many um, pleasant distractions. You know, the internet has created this, this uh, ever- you know, ever-flowing stream of candy that you could always dip into at any time. You could always change your foul mood by dip, listening to some sort of internet drama, listening to the Luke Ford stream, you know, watching a video, learning about stalactites and stalagmites, you know. <laughs> you can do anything you want at any given time, uh, but you just can't get anything done. You have to do that at the expense of getting your work done. And so things... I don't know. You need a lot of discipline these days, Luke. What would happen if you didn't answer the Slack messages on a Sunday? Would would it be a serious setback to your working position? And I well, uh, okay. You can ignore he, you can ignore them here or there, right? But if you if you never answer them, right? Why don't you ever answer my, you know, that itself can be an issue. So you have to sort of tactically uh, answer one or two, just so that you don't have to answer that larger question of why do you never answer my Slack messages? But what if you but simply you, didn't answer on Sunday or, 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 answer or here, during the week? Okay, because I'll tell you why. You know that quote, I think it's by Mark Twain. It's like a man who's established a reputation for being industrious can sleep till noon. Right. Right. So I have to cultivate that I have to keep, and I have a very good uh, a reputation, right? So um, uh, I have to maintain that uh, reputation. Otherwise, then, then, then things really fall off the rails, right? You have to have that trust intact. So if I don't answer slacks, it'll just seem that I'm slacking off. I'll l lost my reputation. There's a very, very delicate calculus here. Yeah, either that or you're not seeing reality clearly. Hold on. I'm actually answering a Slack right now. Cool. Okay, let me... Let me all right, I'm back. I just said right? hold. Okay. Uh, uh, <clears throat> okay, I'm back. You there? Yeah. All right, sorry. 
it's just ridiculous. You know, I, I, I don't know. I like I now I everything seems clear to me, right? Uh, why, you know, I was looking at a kid, you know, as a kid, you'd look at adults and say, man, these adults are really neurotic. You know, why do they behave in these strange ways? Uh, you know, it's, this is, but then you learn. <laughs> you grow up and you learn because they're, they're, they're just dealing with just nonsense all of the time. Right. You've got to protect your energy levels. You've got, you got to make some choices to upgrade your energy and to protect your energy from being leached. Your energy is leaking all over the floor. It is. It is. It absolutely is. We, we, we must not be incontinent, Luke. No, we must not be just spilling our energy all over the dusty soil. <laughs> exactly. Every exactly. bit of energy is sacred. Every kilojoule of energy is pure. God will make them pay for each bit of energy that's... If a kilojoule is wasted, yes, God will get quite irate. <laughs> like you can't let them infect your vital bodily fluids. No. Like I, I, I'm not saying say, say no to women, say yes to women, but don't let them suck your vital bodily fluids. I'm going to deny them my essence, Luke. Deny them your essence, bro. You can't just be spilling your essence all over Slack on a Sunday for their benefit when you so yeah. badly need it to retain your equilibrium. Okay. All right. So you are uh, now. Okay. Can I tell you a long? I mean, uh, I have Go like ahead. a long this is a story. Safe space. This is I have a, a long space. story that happened over the weekend. Population's going to love this. Past this. Week. Okay. Yeah. So the thing I don't want to offend half the Lucian because I know he wants to hear another sermon about Ukraine. So uh, could I, you know, I, I, I enter these waters very uh, tentatively. So uh, do I have permission, Luke? Or yes. Go we, ahead. Go. Uh, okay. All right. So, so uh, this past Wednesday, like I had a meeting, right? So one of our investors is from uh, Australia. Right. Another Aussie, yet another Aussie connection. Okay. And he's got this lackey uh, that sort of does his bidding. I guess this guy in Australia is a billionaire, but he has sort of like a uh, his right hand man who's also from Australia was coming, came to the States to sort of check in on his investments. You know, so it's sort of a big deal because, you know, you got to sort of A, you can't say no to that meeting that B, you've got to sort of you got to bring your A game, you know. And, uh, uh, so I had to meet this guy in person. Plus I had to meet, I had to meet up in person with the other members of our team, uh, for the first time in like two years. So we haven't been, we haven't seen each other in person in, since COVID, you know? So this was sort of a big deal there, but I was dreading it because, you know, I'm a pure blood and like, uh, uh, the fact that I haven't been vaccinated just infuriates these people. They hate this fact. They can't put their, their they just can't wrap their heads around it, Luke. And, um, and, and so this has sort of been a source of friction, but, you know, they have to deal with me nonetheless, right? And because uh, they, I'm irreplaceable, Luke. You know, I write code. I'm, I'm one of the elite, Luke. And, yes. and so... I always have that card to play, but so, so, so the, you know, they really want to tear into me, right? They're just holding back. You know, they, they, they hate this, but they can't say anything. They're just holding their fire because they know that, 
you know, pissing me off would be the wrong move strategically. And so, but this nevertheless creates tension, you know, and, but it really hasn't created that much tension because we've been, we've been all working remote, you know, but now we have this big meeting and one of the people, so this meeting was taking place at a law firm downtown. And one of the policies of the law firm is that everybody be vaxxed and show a vaccination card, just enter the building. Right. But I didn't have this and I couldn't do this. And even if I wanted to do this, there'd be no way to do it. Right. I can't go back and take my first boot, my first back and my booster, my third booster, my fourth booster. You know, I can't do any of that. There's just, it's, uh, it, it's literally impossible to do, to meet those requirements now, even if I wanted to. So, uh, so that's just sort of like this piece of nonsense that's just been injected into my life. Right. This whole, COVID thing that, you know, whatever. And so I'm going to this meeting knowing, so we have to meet at this restaurant instead, right? And I, that that allow, that has open seating, has a patio that you can eat outside with and doesn't require vaccination. So we have to sort of navigate all these obstacles. Because like, of everyone, you. Because, because of, of you. me, Luke. Because of me, right? And so I'm like dreading this. This has been like a giant, like herpes sore on my calendar for the past three weeks. Cause I know this day is coming. I just can't, I can't deal with sustained periods of awkwardness. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's like living in a pressure cooker, like the, 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 uh, the, the force of awkwardness, you know? So, um, I, you know, but then I just sort of had this epiphany, you know? Okay. So, okay, well, let me explain. So we, we get to the dinner, we get to the, the lunch and they sit down and I meet this guy, the lawyer, you know, the, the lawyer from the office. And he's, of course, he's Jewish and he looks Jewish and uh, he looks at me and I'm like, I'm a little, this is the guy I'm nervous about meeting, right? Because he's the high powered lawyer and like, I'm going, oh God, I'm going to have to endure, I'm going to have to endure this battery of questions from him as soon as I sit down, you know? And, so I sit down and we actually end up sitting right next to one another, right? And he looks at me and the first thing's out of his mouth. He says, are you in the tribe? <laughs> first Beautiful. thing out of his mouth. Can you Beautiful. believe that? You know, and it's, 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 oh, yeah, it's, it's, ah, you look, you know, we look sort of like one another, you know, we, we vaguely resemble each other. And he says, yeah, you look like everyone I grew up with in high school and so forth. And, you know, he was warm and gregarious and so forth. And, uh, you know, sort of really cut the tension, you know, the tension that I was feeling, you know, and the fact that we sort of hit it off right away, put everybody at ease, Yeah, you know, it was weird. So like the whole sort of psychological dynamic uh, of the, um, of the dinner, of the lunch uh, changed immediately, right? It was like a, I went in there being really wound up and tense and dreading the whole thing. And then within one minute, you know, I was relaxed. My, my, you know, I was telling jokes. I was like, it was night and day. I don't know if you ever had experience like that. Oh, where... yeah. Often. Like, I, I'm afraid I've kind of gone through my life hoping that the, the, the other person will be the better man. That we yeah. kind of get over my awkwardness. Yeah. And it's called borrowed functioning. So other people are more functional than me. And so I kind of draft off their their higher functioning and 
you know, feel better. But the problem is it doesn't last. You know, I'm, I'm drafting, you know, I'm like a cyclist who's, who's drafting behind someone else who's breaking the, breaking the air. And yeah, yeah it's, it's borrowed functioning. Okay. Well, okay. So, um, um, so there God was a point. through my life borrowing other people's functioning. Okay, but no, but I, I, I understand that. But I, I was getting somewhere else where there was something that you were dreading. You finally go in and face it. Yeah. And then it's not a big deal. Well, th that's connected to all sorts of things you've been talking about, such as distracting yourself from work. When mm -hmm. you give yourself a dopamine hit for not doing your work by, say, watching something on YouTube, you reinforce that, that addiction to distraction as opposed to when you knuckle down and tackle what's in front of you, then you reinforce those muscles. So they're two, they're two contradictory ways. Every time we reward ourselves for choosing distraction rather than our responsibilities, we, we deepen that, that tendency. And every time we choose our responsibilities over distraction, we deepen that tendency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I guess I guess my problem is is that uh, uh, I can do a lot of things except like social awkwardness. I, 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 I'm the one that breaks the silence, right? If something is awkward, I'm the one that sort of like breaks the silence such that uh, uh, just to just to just yeah, to create some noise because I hate that awkward tension. That right? that social awkwardness is is low low energy. It's it's the result of a lot of unsuccessful interactions. So when you have more successful interactions, you won't have that awkwardness. And that social awkwardness isn't just with you on social occasions, it's with you all the time. Only you don't necessarily realize it until anxiety or, or fear or frustration rears its its ugly head, but it's still exerting a toll in the background. So we have to make choices that energize us in a, a smooth kind of kind of energy, and then we build up resources from doing that, and that that then carries over into all our interactions. But if we have this this ongoing emotional or social awkwardness, that's with us all the time. Like if we got a problem in one area of our life, the, the problem is very likely in many many areas of our life. It's just that in certain areas we can't distract ourselves from from the problem, but it, it's there taking a toll on our bandwidth on an ongoing basis so we have to we have to make choices it seems to me this is my new kick we have to make choices that maximize our energy yeah which okay. means doing less of some things and more of other things sorry go ahead okay but these choices now is this the fight or do you fight or do you flight do you fight yeah fight? sometimes you fight and sometimes you flight yeah whichever choice is going to give you more energy in the long run right but um what if you have what if you habitually flee when you should be fighting? Then that's a problem. And it's just going to make the problem worse by every time you flee when you should be fighting. But fleeing will often seem as though... Uh, yeah, it'll give you an immediate payoff. Like you'll right. get a dopamine high. It's like, ah, I escaped from that situation. You'll get a dopamine rush and that dopamine rush exacerbates this bad behavior. Okay. So every so, time you do, you flee, every time you avoid or every time you distract yourself when you should be manning up, you increase your tendency in the future to distract yourself. But these cravings, such as craving for fleeing, it's just the same as craving for porn or for a cigarette, they will peak. And if you don't give in to them, they will diminish and, and fall away so that a few hours later, you won't even remember them. But every time you feed the craving, 
in an unhealthy direction, you're just going to exacerbate that tendency in the future. Yeah, but okay. Um, but also, okay, because Uh, all right, think about it this way. In the times of a, if like there's a conversation, right? I know the Vax conversation is just in, in, inherently triggering and is likely to, I, there's no way I can win that exchange, right? There's just no way. And everyone there at the, at the lunch is all about the Vax, 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 people who don't Vax, I hate people who don't Vax, full while knowing that I'm not Vax, right? But they forget and they talk about it anyway. It's a like really top of mind for a lot of people, right? And I'm feeling the urge to just jump in and, and just, just engage the argument, you know, but I'm, whole, I'm sitting on my hands. I'm fleeing, right? Because uh, I know I, I can see where it's going and there's just no winners in this conversation. So that's, that's. Yeah, you're in, in an untenable fleeing. position. You're in an untenable social position because of yeah. your dedication to not getting vaxxed. Now yeah. you can make it worse, such as by speaking up, right? There's no way you're going to come off well in that conversation. So right. you just have choices between a variety of bad options. Some are bad and others are catastrophic. Yes. So, I mean, it's the same as with Ukraine. You can't go around saying, you know, I think Putin's doing a wise thing. That, that would be the kiss of social death. So when, when there's a social consensus around you, you're going to pay an enormous price for bucking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do like to, I do like to imagine that, you know, like, I think a good argument could be like really bonding, right? Like you could argue something out and in that process, it would almost be a creative and like, well, we, we energetic do. experience. We're, we're right? renewing our relationship anew every live stream. Yeah, but you, you have a commitment to open discussion that not most people don't have, right? You'd say you're pretty unique in that regard. Yeah. Or pretty rare in that regard, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's the, like, really successful groups, you know. Now, like, I think one of these guys, I don't know if he was a billionaire, but he was, like, a multimillionaire at this lunch, you know. So I have this immediate deference to people that are very successful, right? Yeah, well, and, most people do. Most yeah. people have deference to the person who has the most emotional energy, so... This lawyer, I assume, had the most energy of, of anyone at that table. And most people will naturally be deferential towards someone who's like that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. He did have a lot of energy, there's no question about it. Um, uh, but he has the, you know, the, you know, which came first, the confidence or the success, you know? Well, they, like, they both constantly supplement each other. Yeah. Hmm. So, I yeah. mean, we all choose those situations which will give us the most energy. Uh, sometimes we choose more wisely than others, but I do this show because it gives me energy. Like, I, it may tire me in the moment, but overall, I, I get a charge of energy. This is why I'm doing this show now instead of going to yoga or to a Torah class this morning. Wow. You know, we all go to where we can be as close to being the star of the interaction as possible. So that may mean in some cases, you know, going to synagogue, going to going to a, a bar, going to a soccer game. We all want to be the star of our interactions. And so, hey, I get to host a live stream. I get to be the star of this interaction. 
And you get to be a star too, Elliot. A bright and shiny. I one. do. I can call in and become yes. a star. Be like yeah. a, I, I'd be the sidekick, you know. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, so anyway, it was a long lunch, right? And like, it was like a Roman feast, right? Like just courses came when the menu comes, it's all in Spanish, you know, it's a Peruvian restaurant and I can't read anything, you know, I can sort of parse out what's there and it's basically seafood and I can't stand seafood. Uh, so I, I did find one non-seafood dish, but that's beside the point. Everybody ended up ordering something, right? And this just parade of foods just starts coming, one dish after another, right? And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be forever. And we eat and everyone likes to talk about food and so forth. And I can't stand food conversations. And like, so I'm just got, I'm on full endurance mode, right? Full endurance mode. Just get through it, breathe, go to your happy place, you know? Uh, and so food comes, we eat, right? And things are winding down, right? Finally, you know? And like, I can see the finish line. And um, I swear to God, like, so I, I, you know, that's like you're, you're, you don't want to be the first one to say, okay, let's go, let's wrap it up. You know, you're waiting. So that's this awkward silence at the end of a large sort of multi-person lunch where uh, you don't want to be the first to jump, but you, you sort of, you start, you start shifting in your seat and edging towards the door. You're waiting for someone to say, well, let's go, you know, but you don't want to be the one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Oh, we're on that part. We're in that pie. We're all shifting their seat. Everyone wants to be out of there. And then out of nowhere comes another set of food. <laughs> More dishes started arriving. And uh, it was ridiculous. So it ended up being like an extra hour. So the whole thing took maybe two and a half hours to, you know, to get out of there. And uh, I really left there feeling like I'd gone to war. Anyway, now is that is that true for pretty much any dinner, any any social gathering? Two and a half hours is going to exhaust you. Yeah, yeah pretty much. If it's more than a handful, if it's more than like two people, yes, because uh, or, or if it's more than three people, right? Like a, a lunch, dinner, more than three people, meaning four or more, they pretty they exhaust me pretty quickly because uh, invariably the conversation just takes a turn that just does not interest me and I just have to sit and endure. And then it's a situation where I can't be frank about my opinions, right? There's nobody based, nobody red pilled. It's a completely normal, it's just a normie experience. And normie conversation just really uh, just drags on me. It's not spicy, it just, it's so quotidian. I can't- So what, what, it sounds like what you got the, the the crack hit of the the comp like normal normal interaction just doesn't do it for you anymore like once you've seen double anal you know you can't go back to playboy exactly so it's like this uh you know it's dopamine in and of itself uh yeah you you you're not used to uh you can't take like uh the npr crowd anymore once you've seen Luke Ford, you can't, you can't do NPR. Why can't you enjoy some normie conversations? Like what is it about, is there nothing in the normie conversation that, that you, you can't relate to? That was it a double seems, negative. Sorry. There's nothing in the normie. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, um, 
and um, you know, it's always the most benign, safe topics such as food. Oh, I like this food. Oh, I went somewhere and I had this food and it was great. You know, this is just uh, how long can you endure that? Well, you know, I mean, you can sushi. contribute. Oh, I like cooked food. I don't. I don't like sushi. I can eat raw food. You know. It goes on forever, Luke. And it's is there nothing that you could contribute there? I, I remember I once went to this dinner party and I was just completely bored. And then they brought out mango cake for dessert. And I just like lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, I just became this outgoing, happy, ebullient person. I mean, food can have an enormous impact on me. Can't, can't you relate to something like that? I can, but it's sort of like, it's so low on Maslow's needs, bro. I'm, I'm interested in the upper Maslow's tier. needs are about human connection. So you connect with, with what you've got. Like if everyone's talking about food, can't, can't you find a bridge to, to join in? I, I can talk about it, but isn't it boring, Luke? Like, oh, I Yeah, like generally it bores me, but there's got to be some way in. Like some way you can you can shift it to to something interesting that's still food related. Um, no, you, you seem completely alienated it. from normies. Like like normies are a foreign land. They are a foreign land, Luke. They are a foreign land, and that's sad. I, is it sad, Luke, or is it um, maybe? Uh, Maybe I'm like a like a higher plane loop, like I'm on this mushroom plane that most people can't touch, you know. So did you see that? Did you see that Scott Adams? Like he thinks mushrooms are going to be the uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 competitive difference between in the U.S. versus other countries. We because of mushrooms, we'll be able to sort of reimagine our world and become far more competitive and innovative than any other country. And so we're going to dominate on the strength of mushrooms. What do you think about that? I'm skeptical. Yeah. Do you know the timestamp? Cause there's a 59 minute show here. It's, it's, the yeah, it's, 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 uh, I would say, it's, I don't know the exact time. So it's probably, um, probably within the last 10 minutes of the show. Okay. Um, uh, but do you, do you think he's onto something? Um, no, I think mushrooms can be very re uh, revolutionary in one's personal life to a certain degree, but uh, it, it's very much what I call Silicon Valley thinking that all problems have like a win-win solution, yeah. right? There's no win-lose, right? Everyone, you get big points in Silicon Valley if you just say it's a win-win, right? <laughs> No one wants to hear the idea that there's going to be winners and losers and they can't even wrap their mind around it. And they think every problem has a solution, right? That there's just, there's just positive outcomes of the norm that are just to be expected. And if they're not, something's wrong. It's sort of the worldview that underlies all liberalism. But I mean, but there's also brutal competition in silicon valley they're very quickly winners and losers uh, it, it's also absolutely brutal in combination with that mushy rhetoric yes uh but that's creative destruction luke 
Right. So it's not ju- they're not just living in this make-believe, mushy world. It's, it's rhetoric that they use, but the way they operate is inconsistent with that rhetoric. For sure. For sure. It's just as capitalist as anything else. Yes. Um, Have you been watching any of the Silicon Valley uh, TV shows of late, such as The Dropout about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, or Super Pumped about the rise of Uber, or We Crashed about the crashing of No, Uber? but I'd love to. I'd yeah. love to. I'd love to. Like I said, I'm trying to keep my... I'm trying to keep my uh, dopamine low. Like uh, uh, you're on a I don't know, when I'm watching pass? TV. If I if I'm watching TV, I feel like I'm wasting time. I well, be doing what about the towards the end of the day when when uh, you're too tired to do anything productive? I mean, don't you get a break? Doesn't doesn't Elliot deserve some playtime? Yeah, but Elliot usually likes to go outside at that point and get some exercise or listen to Luke and Chatsburg. So you go out at you know eight nine ten o'clock at night in San Francisco and what do no, you do? No 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 no. I go out at like three or four. Come back at six. I make dinner. Then I go to sleep. Fall right to sleep, like a little babe. Did you know Elizabeth Holmes? No, no. Travis Kavelnik and the Uber. No, never, never met him. I, however, went skiing with a guy that knew Marissa Meyer. Uh, who was the uh, you know who she is yeah she was the leader of Yahoo she was gorgeous yeah yeah yeah. and like there was like I was trying to angle to get myself invited to so Marissa Meyer used to like she had this list of ski friends and if she wanted to go skiing she would call up her ski friends you know send them a message and then charter a plane and they would fly somewhere to go skiing. Like I knew a guy that was in that group and I wanted more than anything else to be a, a member of that group. Sadly, I wasn't. Yeah, pretty cool, but you'd have to learn to speak Normie. Oh yeah, for sure. You'd be sure. willing to learn to speak Normie to be in that group, wouldn't you? Oh, totally, bro. I can okay, so see the rewards. Well. Think about the rewards of learning to speak Normie and then uh, mm-hmm. make it real, make it happen, bro. There are lots of, interesting normal conversations to have doesn't have to be all race war (laughs) hi guys you know that different people have different gifts (laughs) (laughs) is that the way to open so what Uh, are you going to do to boost your energy levels elliot i'm going to i this is going to be the year of consolidation and um uh, uh simplification loop I am going to get myself pared down to the point where I have no extraneous nonsense to deal with. And I'm going to wake up every morning and be a complete tabula rasa and just see what, see what the universe brings me because all of my other extraneous things have been put to bed. So get my finances in order, get my, my apartment in order, uh, uh, just back to basics. Uh, I started some prepping, Luke. I started prepping. Oh, great. What, what did so, you get? What did you do? So uh, I, I went to Costco and I got, I got like probably two years worth of cat food because um, I just can't like, I couldn't really imagine like trying to explain to cats that there's no food, right? And, I got, and you like, can uh, also eat it too. <laughs> the worst comes to worst, yes. Yeah. But then I got like lots of olive oil 
I got like 10 pounds of butter. Uh, like I'm just thinking like in a survival situation, what do I need most? Right. Yeah. Power so, for your phone. Uh, power for my phone. Well, we might not have phones, bro. Who knows? But yeah, I have a lot of power bricks and maybe that's a good idea. I'll have them powered up. Um, I got, um, okay. So a lot of like bulk commodities, you know, like beans and rice and things. But you so, can't cook them. Huh? You won't be able to cook them. Well, you're not going to have power. You have to be prepared for no power for weeks. What about no gas? No yeah. gas for weeks. I do have some charcoal. Well, that's a good point, bro. Maybe that's what I do today. I get some charcoal briquettes. Because you can light a fire. Uh, but what about water? No running water would be a kill. No running water for weeks, bro. For weeks. Okay. Well, I got work to do then. I got work to do, bro. Uh, but yeah, I started prepping uh, just in case. You know, I heard like, you know, they're talking about Biden's basically raised the specter of food shortages. This yes. This what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's obviously right. There, there, are, there are always going to be some foods in shortage, and now there are going to be a lot more foods in shortage. Like bread prices are going to triple. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, they say, now I heard this doom scenario was if Ukraine doesn't get, if the Ukraine doesn't plant their crops right now, it's planting season. If they don't get their crops planted, uh, then the, the, the repercussions from that in the fall are going to be pretty, pretty dire. Is that what you've heard? Yes. Hmm. Who's to know? Who's to know? And who do you think is going to win the NC2A men's basketball? Uh, Villanova. Villanova. Are they in it this year? Yes. <laughs> They're in the final four. Are they really? That was a total yep. wild guess. It was a wild guess. Because every year I always hear about Villanova, which is the, I only ever hear them in the context of basketball. <laughs> I didn't know where Villanova is. Well, yeah, game. generally speaking, athletic powerhouses aren't academic powerhouses. Yeah. Um, who do you think? Do you watch? I, I'd love to see St. Peter's. I'm, I'm rooting for St. Peter's. Well, every like tiny there's... Jesuit school you know, is, is in the final eight. Is this one of those sort of uh, Cinderella long stories? Shots? Yeah, yeah, those long shot Cinderella stories. St. Pete's. Uh, I couldn't care less, Luke. I can't stand watching basketball. Basketball has none of the appeal of football. Do you watch basketball? Yeah. Yeah. What do you like? Uh, uh, one thing it does is it gives you normie talk. You can talk to anyone about sports, particularly men. Yes. So that's right. That right after food, then you come to sport. So it goes weather, sports. No, weather, food, sports. This is the normie hierarchy. They're all uninteresting. How about silence, Luke? How about getting, you know, just not talking just how about pineapple on pizza what do you think about pineapple on pizza i had that once and it actually it wasn't too bad actually i don't buy it but the it's pretty good actually yeah it's it, sort of the sweetness of the pineapple goes well with the cheese it's very hard to explain have you done this no and uh, afraid of it mm -hmm. not sure but how are you doing with your various uh rescuing people and then 
that taking a toll on you? What, what's going on with your rescuing this week? Um, well, my rescuee is on the East Coast, but uh, I'm still, you know, I spent all of yesterday uh, just make, just piling up things that I can throw away, then piling up other things that I need to ask before I can throw away, piling up things that I can donate, uh, and piling up things that I can ship back to the East Coast. So uh, I've not taken on any new rescuees. I'm trying to detach from my current rescuee. And Beautiful. having learned a painful lesson about human nature. Uh, anyway, bro. Blessings. Uh, I think that's all I got. Okay, man. Take care. All right. All right. Peace. Peace out. Okay, so there's a regular weekly column by Thomas Edsel in the New York Times, which I love. And his latest one is called Democrats Making Life Too Easy for Republicans. So remember after the 2020 elections, how conservatives and right-wingers were all depressed and that Republicans will never win the presidency ever again. Well, now the Republicans are in great shape. And the more stupid things that Joe Biden says, like uh, we need regime change in Russia, uh, the even better shape that uh, Republicans will be in. So this guy, Rue Texaria, He's the co-editor of the Liberal Patriot, writes in an email, the cultural left has managed to associate the Democratic Party with a series of views on crime, immigration, policing, free speech, race, gender that are quite far from those of the median voter. That's a success for the cultural left, but it's an electoral liability for the Democratic Party. So the current Democratic Party brand suffers from multiple deficiencies that make it somewhere between uncompelling and toxic to wide swaths of American voters who might potentially be their allies. So if Fox News criticizes the Democrats for X, then there must be absolutely nothing to X. And the job of Democrats is to assert that loudly and often. So take the issue of crime. So initially, this was, our crime surge was dismissed as an artifact of the COVID shutdown, something that's being vastly exaggerated by Fox News for nefarious purposes. It's now apparent that the spike in violent crime is quite real, and voters are very, very concerned about it. Uh, Democrats have a challenge rooted in political geography and the institution of single-member first-past-the-post elections. So we've got a professor of public policy at Berkeley saying that uh, the density of Democratic voters in cities has both geographically isolated the party and empowered its most left-wing. Democrats need to find ways to compete in moderate and conservative districts if they hope to have majorities of seats in the U.S. Congress or state legislatures. Large numbers of their voters concentrated in cities, quite progressive. They want the party to move further left in its policy positions, not just on social cultural issues. So Democrats have collectively staked out positions that alienate moderate potential supporters. So the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of fall of 2020 brought police form to the agenda. But then suddenly the conversation jumped to defund the police. Now that sounds extreme and scary to most people. Also, Democratic elected officials and teachers unions have weakened the party by closing schools for in-person instruction for too long. Might have made sense to have remote instruction early in the pandemic, but in many places, kids were in Zoom school until April of 2021, or even the end of that academic year. This is going to have, obviously, bad consequences for kids and for parents. We've got multiple studies show that uh, the longer schooling remains remote, the more Democratic places with stronger teachers unions, right? public education, when it's dominated by left-wing teacher unions, is not generally conducted in ways that is best for people and for their kids. This affects people's lives directly. It hands Republicans an issue to run on. So Joe Biden 
you know, won by a small, small margin, then he sought to become the most transformative president since uh, Franklin Roosevelt. But his party held razor-thin majorities in Congress. He lacked the mandate to do it. So the Democrats' success in winning unified party control in the Georgia Senate runoffs in 2021 hugely inflated expectations of Democratic-based voters about what could be achieved. It was even bandied about that Joe Biden was going to be the next FDR. Democrats passed a $3.5 trillion budget revolution resolution that envisioned a transformational domestic policy agenda. But Democrats have not been able to deliver on almost all of their policy goals. The Democrats have not been able to achieve that unanimity on issues of critical importance to the party's base, such as voting rights, build back better, minimum wage, police reform. Democratic-based voters are frustrated and disappointed. So the policy outcomes of trifecta control of national government have been disappointing. So it's hard to see how Democrats can fire up their base to turn out again. And it's difficult to see anything changing on this front between now and the 2022 election. So the likely outcome of the 2022 elections, the midterms, will be part of a cycle of disappointment and recrimination that has not only plagued Joe Biden's first two years in office, but also dogged his two most recent Democratic predecessors, Bill Clinton in 1994 and Barack Obama in 2010. Here's the pattern. Republicans provide unified opposition to the Democrats' agenda. Democrats then struggle to corral all of their members behind their program. The party's own voters grow frustrated by the disappointing results compared to their expectations. Right now, there's widespread pessimism among those on the left. And Democrats face an uphill battle in both 2022 and 2024. And the problems for the Democrats go much deeper than that. The white working class that used to vote Democratic no longer does. So the working class tends to have very negative attitudes toward government. They dislike social welfare programs. They're committed to an ethic of personal responsibility and the importance of family and religion. And they resent all the attention paid to race, gender, sexual preference, and identity, and the disrespect that this entails for those with more traditional views and lifestyles. So these messages coming from the most left-wing members of the Democratic Party are exploited by Republicans to move moderate Democrats or no Trump Republicans in the Republican direction. So Democrats have a misguided focus on unpopular social policies driving voters away from the Democratic Party and mobilizing Republicans. Democrats used to be the party of the working class. Today they are seen as the party defined by ostensibly legalizing property crime, crippling the police, injecting social justice into math classes. It's no surprise that this does not connect with a working family struggling to pay for surging grocery bills. So by abandoning their core brand, even Democrats who oppose defunding the police are burdened by the party's commitment to unpopular social policy. So a normal traditional strategy in midterm elections is to mobilize the base. But Democrats have decided to let the fringe brand the party's messaging around issues to fail to obtain majority support among the base. So you've got the most successful misinformation campaign in modern politics being waged by the Twitter left against the base of the Democratic Party. This left-wing Twitter mob is intent on pushing social policies that have zero chance of becoming law to the test of liberalism. So even if you support reducing taxes on the middle class, immigration reform, increasing the minimum wage, opposing defunding the police or the legalization of property crime makes you an unreasonable outcast. So the biggest problem ahead of the 2022 midterms for the Democrats is that voters don't think Biden and the Democrats are focused on the issues that matter most to them, such as inflation, rebuilding the economy, reducing crime, securing the border. Now, Democrats used to have advantages on issues like education, but those advantages are way down. 
let's play a little bit more of this conversation at the Hoover Institute. Neil Ferguson here talking about Ukraine. A column uh, today that there is one huge difference. And that huge difference is that when North Korea invaded South Korea, the United States led an international coalition into that war. Whereas in this case, all we are doing is providing Ukraine with armaments and not even the full suite of armaments that we could provide. So our intervention here is on a much more modest scale. And I worry about where that potentially could lead. So please tell us more about your understanding of the analogy and how you think Cold War II plays out, because it might not play out as well as Cold War I ultimately did. Yeah, well, Neil, you were you were far earlier than everybody in calling this uh, what it is, which is a second Cold War. <clears throat> I I um I I've thought for a long time that Beijing was waging a Cold War against us, but I've also believed that Americans were not willing uh, or ready yet to sort of accept um, uh, accept the nature of the conflict that we're in. I think that Ukraine now makes it blindingly obvious, at least to my mind, uh, that that's the paradigm that we're in. And actually that it's valuable, it's useful to think of it in Cold War terms because it has predictive and explanatory value. Um, as you've said, there's, there are differences between World War I and World War II as well, but, but let's not get lost in the nuance of the differences. The, the, the similarities overshadow them and, and help us to really frame uh, and, and keep in mind the sorts of things that we need to be doing as, as business leaders, as policymakers, as everyday citizens. Um, look, I, I mean, the, the similarities include the fact that we're in a long-term strategic competition between nuclear-armed powers. Um, it, it is, uh, these are powers for whom military uh, might is extremely important, uh, and it is possible that we end up in a head-to-head head, head -head conflict with either Russia or with China, God forbid, with both. Uh, but there is also an interest, uh, I believe, on the part of even Putin and Xi Jinping, as well as uh, the U.S. And, and, and its allies, to, to constrain uh, our our head-to-head -head competition to other domains, informational, technological, and economic, uh, diplomatic, uh, and so Okay, here's more from this Thomas Edsall essay in the New York Times on the problems that Democrats face in this next election. Okay, the economy is the issue that uh, voters are most concerned about. Republicans have been able to weaponize culture war issues in a way that significantly damages Democrats. So the 12 House Democratic freshmen who lost in 2020 on a ticket with a winning presidential candidate all were seriously hurt by culture war attacks. So this democratic liability has become acute as politics have become nationalized, making all Democrats pay a price for what a small but prominent group pushes for. Members of Congress on the far left have taken a series of positions like defunding the police, abolishing immigration and customs enforcement, closing federal prisons, decriminalizing border crossings, that are politically toxic in swing districts. It's no longer the case that what happens in a deep blue district where these kind of ideas might be more palatable stays there. These ideas and slogans create a perception among swing voters that Democrats are outside the mainstream. So voters will use 2022 to remind Biden and the Democrats that their vote in 2020 was a return to normalcy, not a blank check to build on the New Deal and great society. But once in office, with ridiculously narrow margins, Democrats use the crisis to swing for the stands, ignoring the historical lesson of the Senate's moderating role. So the Democrats have created for themselves the worst of all worlds, a failure to enact what the base demanded, but did not have the votes to deliver. 
and the appearance of having overreached and invited an electoral haircut by many 2020 supporters never embraced such a sweeping agenda. And then, good article here in the New York Times, an important concept of uh, narrative collapse, context collapse. So she was a leading candidate to lead uh, Levi's, then she started tweeting. So she started tweeting against school closures and against mask mandates for children. She says it's a matter of free speech, but uh, it cost her her career at Levi's, even though she was on track to become CEO. So a professor of sociology says that uh, uh, this was an example of an increasingly common phenomenon in the digital age known as context collapse. It used to be after segment who you are. You could go to church and behave like you did in church and then go to work and behave like you did at work and you could go out with friends and behave that way. Now, whatever it is we're saying or posting, we're posting it in front of all the people in our lives. So context collapse. When you bring friends from different groups together, it can get awkward, and that's essentially what Facebook is. You're one of the millions of younger people quitting Facebook. More than a decade, we've used Facebook as a way to keep up with friends. But uh, we're in a, a phenomenon called context collapse, what happens when many social groups exist in one space. When you have Facebook friends numbering in the thousands, your audience becomes difficult to speak to. It's like trying to comfortably chat with your mother, your bar buddy, your work colleague, and an ex-boyfriend at the same time. So in a place where parents, colleagues, bosses, and friends all congregate, you can find it difficult to be yourself or rather decide which self to be because there's no one true self. We are different in different contexts. So the term context collapse was uh, developed in 2003 in relationship to social networking sites, MySpace, and Friendster. And context collapse is as real as gravity. So rather than blaming individuals for online actions, we should think about the structures that are in place that allow it to happen. Context collapse is not exclusive to online life, but it is more complex in virtual spaces. So it's like a wedding. You have your family there, your co-workers, your old friends, and it can be difficult to know how to behave and to communicate. So online, detaching is not simple. It becomes more difficult over time to juggle the many versions of you in one space. So our interpersonal relationships can be impacted by what we decide to share on social media. Even hitting a like button is a communication choice. It also affects your workplace relationships and your career. If you're educated and you're fired from your job, you probably have other opportunities. If your boss sees something on Facebook and fires you from your part-time job, it could be hard to get another job. So three basic strategies people have adopted to deal with context collapse. One, the lowest common denominator strategy are only making posts comfortable with anybody seeing staying away from anything controversial overly personal or migrating your more lively conversations to a place where you have a smaller audience like a group text instagram dms or snapchat where the audience is clear people also avoid context class by turning to more ephemeral mediums like instagram stories and snapchats where those posts don't stick around Tearing down your network online is a way to fight against context collapse and the sense of loneliness we get from being online You'll feel more comfortable expressing yourself if you know who your followers are. So a like on social media doesn't do much for our relationships. If I leave a comment and then we engage in a dialogue or I send a private message, that has weights. 
so forth. So there are a lot of there are a lot of commonalities. You mentioned the fact that that you know uh, Winston Churchill gave his his great uh, speech in in Fulton, Missouri, 1946, with at Harry Truman's invitation, where he talked about an iron curtain that has descended from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. He spoke in in actually complimentary terms about Joseph Stalin in that speech. And that's because he was trying to persuade the American people that this isn't about our, our World War I and World War II alliances with Russia. This is, we're now in a new paradigm. And he was trying to use his amazing art, arts and gifts of persuasion to say, yeah, <laughs> he was a great stalwart ally of us, but now uh, he, he is running a totalitarian. Okay, let's see if uh, Richard Spencer and uh, Edward Dutton have anything interesting to say. Oh, man. I just finished their stream. And is it gone? Ah. Here, we'll find it on... How are you? I'm okay, yes. And they were right. spoken of in the same, uh, in the same uh, uh, sentences as... You- Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia as as Baltic. And then after the war, there's this strong westernizing narrative uh, on on, on the one hand, but also this between East and West, Czechoslavia, uh, want to be a good physician that stands outside East and West. And immediately upon the end of the Soviet Union, there's been this very strong westernizing narrative, this idea that Finland, forget the fact that Finland, average Finn is 5% East Asian, forget the fact that the language isn't European, forget right. forget all of the Eastern dimensions, forget the fact that there's, there's many other kind of Eastern dimensions to Finland, Finland, but no, no, we're absolutely European here. And so join the European Union, go in the Euro, and joining NATO would kind of be the culmination of that. It would kind of be the, 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 of this westernizing, internationalizing sort of narrative. And it's a way of That's saying yeah, we're, on, we're on the side of the good. We're on the, against Russia, the evil, uh, and, and thus on the side of the good. And so it's very strong among younger people in particular yeah. that we should join NATO and older people that remember the, the days of or have a folk memory of Finland being invaded and losing land to Russia and whatever, they still fear right. Russia and they don't want to piss Russia off by joining NATO. So that's kind of the divide. Interesting. It's also interesting that you you were saying like blue haired people are saying this. So there, there's a, there is this funny aspect of blue haired people, you know, I guess in, in the way that you would describe it being obsessed with harm avoidance and focused on all this just nitty gritty, you know, issues of, you know, trans children rights and and so on. And then basically waking up one day and saying, let's join a violent military alliance. Yeah, well, that's exactly. They they they, they justify it to themselves, I suppose, by saying, "Oh, well, it's it's keeping the peace, and it's uh, it's the it's the lesser." Sure, of two I mean, I agree with them so in many ways. Ultimately, but, yeah. ultimately, ultimately, what it is about <laughs> is is having guns and and bombs and weapons. I mean, that's what they're right. about, and using and using them if you trample on the feet of anyone that's within NATO. So it's a right and stationing battle. U.S. nuclear weapons in other countries, as you know, of, of course, happened with Germany and so on. Right, um, so, was, but they they don't think about this. As far as they're concerned, NATO right. it's a it's a synonym for Goldie and Rosie and rainbows and and love and peace and 
and all that. And uh, right. you've got that there's there's council elections here are coming up, and there's and there um, or, or some kind of election, and they're saying, oh, you should only vote for pro NATO candidates. So interesting. Wow, all about that's NATO. fascinating. It's uh, again, no one was talking this way six weeks ago. No, basically. And then now they're all, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I actually, um, I had my, uh, I was taking care of my children all week and um, we took a little field trip. There's, um, there's another ski mountain about three hours away and they, and it has this really elaborate indoor water park. And I of course feel like I've caught a cold again due to visiting this, um, uh, what is it? Petri dish of childhood viruses <laughs> but uh I'll, I'll be okay um uh but uh why was i mentioning this oh right uh on have you seen that hbo max uh, documentary class action park about this wild out of control uh, water park in new jersey where people kept dying it's it's a compelling documentary this three-hour drive i listened to an interesting book an audio book on it's called not is it not another inch or not one more inch just released and it's kind of a backstage history of nato expansion basically and it goes through 1989 and so on it, it's actually really fascinating on the german question because um it is remarkable how many options and in even kind of proposals um were in the air and a lot of people are talking about not one more inch which james baker said to um, Sherab Nazi, I guess, uh, the foreign minister of the Soviet Union during the time of, during that 89, 91 collapse period, and uh, not one more inch. Well, he wasn't exactly even talking about going into Poland or something. He was actually one more inch at that point was whether East Germany um, would basically um, be neutralized or not NATOized, you could say. So it was even, and the amount of options of, a, uh, maintaining a divided Germany, which, by the way, um, your, uh, your gal, uh, Margaret Thatcher, probably would have wanted. Uh, she was kind of obsessed with uh, 1989 as, you know, uh, presenting the rise of Nazism. <laughs> she felt that, much like Stalin, actually, she felt that when you win these wars, no one can take stuff away from you. So it's like, we fought and won, we almost lost, and so you can't reunite germany like that was one of our achievements uh but there was all of these she options was, she was probably she was probably right about that i mean i don't think it's been much good for us that germany has been united I, I don't, I, I, <laughs> okay okay um yeah i mean i guess you could you could argue that it's definitely a stronger country united um but there were all these other options of uh, neutralizing Germany, taking NATO out of West Germany, having kind of a neutral country, but a unified country. It, it was just a, a lot of options. There's also the Poles, um, at least at one point, were interested in maintaining Soviet weapons in Poland uh, as a counter deterrence against this rising Nazi regime in Germany, again, in the late 80s. It, it's, it, was, it was fascinating. And you kind of do realize that how things there's a lot of behind the scenes dealing that go on it, it was actually um cole who was this big you know portly uh, german politician who was actually kind of a political genius and was very bold okay great news out of israel 
the the fourth vaccine reduces COVID nineteen deaths by seventy eight percent, according to the Jerusalem Post. Old. He wanted a reunified Germany, and he wanted East Germans to vote for the Christian Democratic Union, and he was just pushing forward, kind of not quite telling everyone what he was doing, just kind of making fait accompli's. He was at I. I don't know. That was kind of my takeaway was that Margaret Thatcher was batty and um, Helmut Kohl was um, surprisingly bold. He's kind of one of these big portly guys that, you know, conservatives that you don't take too seriously, but he's actually like working. He wanted to be the new Bismarck and, uh, and, and he kind of managed to be the new Bismarck. He, he reunited yeah. Germany. But um, yeah. um, sorry, where, where's this leading? I thought we were going to talk about the issue of um, the ladies. I, oh, we're, we're just talking just, right now. This is what people love. Like I was fascinated by. I was fascinated by 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 that. That's what I, what's been on my mind this week. That's what I've been thinking about the issue of uh, of what is a woman. Uh, and, oh and, yes, and how, what is a how, woman? How that how 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 that can be defined, and why it is that it can't be defined unless you're a biologist. And it's it's set up this new this new meme that oh, is it raining? I can't. <laughs> and so on. But, uh, yeah, I, I talked about this. Let let's just play. Um, I let me just play this uh, for you. Spring break um, in Florida. This is a mob and trash I'll just play the tire Walmart here. Use um, rampaging. So we just kind of get everything on there. Let me make sure. Hold on, hold on. Come on, Richard. Let me make sure we're getting the. Um, so the Supreme Court nominee that down. from Joe Biden was asked, what is a woman? Okay. And she couldn't answer uh, I it. Make it was sure just, that I get it was just way too complicated. Uh, yeah, you have to share audio. Come on, Richard. Pull it together, man. So okay, spring break in Florida, work. a group of Sharing 40 kids, mob Walmart, trashed the entire score just for fun. Woman. Okay, let me go back to the beginning. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. Yeah. Not a um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so let me, let me set up a little bit of context first. <laughs> so decades ago, the... Uh, nomination and approval of Supreme Court justices was basically a kind of rubber stamping process. And there were some contentious ones, Robert Bork being very famous, Clarence Thomas being famous in the 1980s. Clarence Thomas gave birth to the Anita Hill controversy where they were talking about porn and uh, various bodily fluids on, <laughs> on the floor of the Senate. It was uh, not the finest hour. Um, but generally speaking, there, there are some people, you know, who will get unanimous consent and so on. At this point in polarization, it is basically a culture war battle. And so a lot of these Republicans actually approved of, uh, uh, uh of the new justice. Um, uh, what is her, why am I forgetting her name at the moment? But oh, yes, friends, no, legal yes, minds. What, what, what was what is her name again? I'm, they're using an um, RBG acronym, Kenji. I I can't believe the new I one is Kenji, her name. Kenji Kenji Brown. Kenji Brown. Kenji Brown. Is, Brown is, thank is, you. Is name, yeah. All right. So 
these have become just sites of a culture war battle. And so she was approved for an appellate court by all of these Republicans a few months ago because it's not a televised nomination process where they can grandstand. Now, there was a tremendous amount of grandstanding. And let's also, just to be fair, uh, admit that this question, can you give a definition of a woman, was a kind of bad faith, let's get into a argument about transsexuals type thing by the Republicans, just to be fair. Um, but the way that she could have responded by that is just to give a simple definition. She could have even said, like, you know one when you see one. I mean, it's a famous definition of pornography. You, you just, she could have called the bluff, but she was obviously terrified. She, can't, she, said, she said, I can't do that. Now, can't as in you, you don't have the intellectual capacity to offer a definition. I don't think that's what she was saying. She was saying it out of fear. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Oh, my God. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. I think the way that okay. the way that she the way that she responded was was to, it was to this southern sounding senator, whatever she yeah, was, she's from Tennessee. was was uh, was almost it was contemptuous. It was like, can I can I can I provide one? As, as if as if it was a ridiculous. Well, this is a a good issue for Republicans that uh, people on the left increasingly can't define what a woman is. This is a winning culture war issue. Sir, impertinent question. Um, right. That that uh, and she, she obviously felt. I think she felt that this person's against me. This person's yeah. trying to show me up. This person's trying to make me look crap. And I, I don't like this person. And so there was this contempt. Can I provide one? And then she said, "Not in this context." Now I think that would. I think she should have stopped it there. If she said, "Not, not in this context," it would have been a way of saying, "I'm not going to do it in this context because you're obviously doing it because you know this is a political hot issue and you right. want to cause a stir." So I'm not answering. That's what she should have said. But then, but then she thought, I think she must have thought it would be funny to say, uh, or witty or something, to say, I'm not a biologist. Uh, and that, that, that undermined the whole thing, because then immediately it's, it's such, an, it's such a, a, a pretentious thing. The, the idea that, well, actually, to, to be fair, a person that defines things is a lexicographer. So really she right. should have said, I'm not a lexicographer. But anyway, um, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a biologist, because if only a biologist can, de can define a woman it's that's just a patently well okay absurd. this this gets to this other level of it because uh you know look this was bait and then basically everyone took the bait and i agree with everyone who's kind of outraged by this why cannot why can't you <laughs> just say something like a woman is someone with a vagina and ovaries who is able to uh, give birth to children that's really simple you don't even have to go into femininity or or what have you, or say that a woman's place is in the home, or something. You don't have to do any of that. It's, it's a simple definition would suffice. Uh, so I agree with all these people, but I want to get kind of deeper. I mean, I, one thing I have noticed is the kind of specialization and nicheification of basically information workers in an advanced post-industrial society. So where Everything is so specialized that being a generalist is just simply impossible. And you can't even speak the language of these kind of arcane specialization. Like, I don't want to step on the toes of biology because they've probably come up with some newfangled definition that I couldn't even possibly understand. And I think that's actually a horrible process. Putting aside political correctness or wokeness, which I, of course, agree, you know, affected this. Just this notion that you can't have opinions on subjects that 
every educated person had an opinion on a, a mere decades ago is really a sign of serious decline. For and I, I mentioned yeah. this on a little tweet storm. Like, if you were an educated person, you know, even let's say twenty years ago or thirty years. I mean, this is not even that long ago. Um, you would have been expected to know who Tolstoy is. You would have been expected to, you know, you you might need to have quote a line of Shakespeare once in a while. You were expected to have opinions on the, you know, general store of Western civilization. And now with these like arcane theoretical disciplines that you can't speak that language, so you don't even try. And it's like, well, I just can't even. Well, you have, it's, an interesting, it's a very interesting uh, psychological difference, in some ways a psychological difference uh, along political lines. Uh, E.O. Wilson wrote a very interesting book on this, and if you read it, called Consilience, where he mm -hmm. looks at the, the breakup of knowledge. So what happens as you, in, as you create this uh, academia and whatever is that people become more and more and more specialised and more and more and more uh, divided into their separate disciplines uh, and 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 therefore and they don't they don't communicate with each other and so you just get this separation and eventually you get a situation where the humanities become have different underlying assumptions from the sciences and and so on and he was arguing that this is a terrible idea what we need to do is to bring it back together to, you should have people who are biologists should be talking about society they should be talking about culture they should be talking about all these yeah. things and there should be a hierarchy of disciplines with maths at the at the, at the top at the pinnacle and every single discipline has to um, every assertion you make in a discipline should make sense in terms of the discipline which underpins it so ultimately the test of a psychological theory is that it makes sense in terms of the biology the test of a biological theory is that it makes sense in terms of the chemistry and the problem is mm. that these kinds of people that uh, the, you know, it's the difference between the people that are interested in the truth and genuinely understanding the world, those kinds of people, like the Darwins, and they collect information like magpies, and they make, they make sense of, uh, of lots of things. And Nate Silva has got a good tweet here, that uh, here a common critique that the media devotes way too much attention to inflation, but voters care about inflation much more than the media does. It outpaces all issues, including Ukraine and COVID. And it certainly does not work to the Democrats' favor. Also, we've had uh, dramatic uh, figures on who's leaving the big cities. So 328,000 people left New York City during the pandemic. 120,000 people moved out of Los Angeles. Makes sense because the reason to live in a big city is all the social engagement and communal things that are available. So if you're stuck in your fairly small apartment, then that's no fun. In, in big cities, because the price of real estate is so expensive, you do most of your socializing out. You don't entertain in nearly as much because you, generally speaking, don't have the space. Those kinds of people. And then there's right. the very different psychology of the kind of person uh, that's really just interested in power and whatever and is therefore invested in the system and invested in the titles and invested in the prestige and therefore likes it being broken up and separate um, and and is, is then highly credentialist and will kind of try to argue that you shouldn't be able to make an assertion about at its most extreme anything that is not the exact subject of your doctoral thesis let's say you don't have a right to make an assertion about 
And I get this all the time because I go, I've gone on a journey from starting off in theology to ending up in in science. And of course, right. people that are, that are the credentialists that have gone that done it the the boring way and done a science degree and a science doctorate and a science postdoc and a science lectureship or whatever, they find it very frustrating because all they've got is these qualifications, and they find it, and they find it very annoying that that's not that, that people will listen to people like me or Emil Kierkegaard or whoever Michael Woodley that don't have formal qualifications in the in the area that we're that we're talking because about. you need really- smart people like you don't necessarily need people with a degree i mean i i think that's also this because in some ways brown's nomination is the triumph of credit triumph of credentialism so joe biden said at the beginning we're going to appoint a black woman we've never had one yippee uh and then you find she actually is on some stupid level the most qualified supreme court justice ever in the sense that she's got ivy league schools check mark she uh she actually went to public school uh she's clerked for a supreme court she's been on the appellate court and and so on she's much more credential than say kagan who um was a professor who didn't publish very much curiously but uh the the point is that that's all f- so elon musk is giving serious consideration to starting a free speech social media platform. That could be pretty cool. Fine and good. And I don't think this um, Brown is is a bad person or anything like that, but it's just, she's not very impressive. You say the word word intelligent. I'd like to develop that. I would say creative. And you'll you'll get some people who are highly intelligent, but they can't think an original thought because they, right. they are not creative. What, what Wilson was saying in, in Consilience is that you need to, where originality and breakthroughs come from is creativity, and that involves seeing the connections between disparate things. Right. So you've got this, this, this breakup of, of, of knowledge into all of these different disciplines. And what the, sorry, what the genuinely creative person does is he, he puts them back together again. And right. that's what Darwin did, and that's what Wilson did. Wilson, you know, his area that he studied was ants, and right. being a creative thinker, he saw the connection between the nature of ants and the nature of humans. And it was from well, that. It's, it's, it's also really... what Freud did. It's what Marx did. It's what I mean. Any, I mean, whether you think these people are completely wrong or or whatever, they they created a core system a, a perspective of viewing the world and you can actually apply that lens to effectively everything so you can have a marxian view of religion you can have a freudian view of biology of social science of politics and so on and again right. even and if you dismiss them creativity right that's the creative. Yeah. we saw these relationships and the un- the uncreative person uh, doesn't do that the uncreative the uncreative person just gets something which somebody else has done that's creative and then tags something on the end and right. the uncreative person will will uh, be built into will be uh, invested in a paradigm wh- where that should not be rocked you, you have the paradigm you have the person you think is brilliant and you just add a bit on the end add a bit on the end and the one thing you don't want you, you don't want is for that paradigm to be undermined because you're invested in that whereas the right. person that genuinely is in favor of truth he doesn't care about the the, the, the financial aspects of it or the, the the power aspects of it he just cares about the truth and therefore he is happy to rock 
uh, these kinds of these kinds of paradigms and to see the connection between different things. And a lot of these people that are now in the universities, the, the creative types are also going to be the offensive types, the controversial types. They are removed, and you just get these head girl types that that tick all the boxes and write with very yeah. neat handwriting and whatever. Probably put <laughs> dot their eyes with hearts. Uh, like mm -hmm. uh, like this brown, I always do spangy that. woman or whatever her name is. Oh, for God's sake! Um, <laughs> but, 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 uh, so so that's what, <laughs> no, she, exactly. that's what she that's what she and you've got to have you, you've got to have a it's people that but people that don't know much about the law. It, well, I don't know that much about it, but you you've got to think creatively. You're presented with this information. You're presented with a case that doesn't fit within the normal systems, and you've got to be able to think kind of creatively. Uh, how right. how best to deal with it, uh, um, yeah. and how how best to, to uh, these two legal principles you have to balance, of course, between positivism and idealism, uh, yeah. and how how best you do that in those circumstances. And the great yeah. legal minds, people like Lord Denning, uh, that's exactly what they do. And I I doubt that she is. But one thing I don't understand though about the American Supreme Court system is the way I find it extraordinary that it's politicized like that. In England, we have this idea that judges should absolutely be above politics. And yeah. in America, you that. elect you elect judges. You can is, do that you know, in some in some cases, it, it, not always. And, I mean, Supreme Court justices are not elected. I mean, they are they're effectively elected in the sense that, you know, appointing you know is one of these guys going to die, and we need to vote for a Democrat so Roe v. Wade won't be overturned. So in that in that sense, they are um, elected by the president. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's just extremely politicized and at least the and and brown actually said this um but it at least in the american context which i i think there is an overarching there's an overarching kind of logic of non-discrimination and um yeah an overarching logic of non-discrimination maybe even the civil rights movement that seems to inflect everything for for better and for worse it, it can actually in some ways protect dissident thinkers by the fact that you cannot discriminate against this person, even if this person is holding up a sign that says God hates fags at the funeral of a military officer, which is, you know, pretty toxic. You still, that still is speech. And so, but I, I think that. Vicky Kaus has uh, some good tweets here about Joe Biden's awful speech. It was so off in timing and substance, you have to worry if a less sealed White House would have produced it. Did it just sail through without anybody pointing out the problems? Well, at least this White House is a discreet and insular place. Even if you strike the ad lib line about how Putin must be removed from power, it's still a speech that seems to make it completely clear that even if Putin withdraws from Ukraine, Biden and NATO intend to wage a long war against autocracy in Russia. Why is that a good message to send right now? So it's another example of how the Biden administration had no interest in peace in Ukraine. Like uh, Biden said about the long war against Putin, we must commit, commit now to be in this fight for the long haul. We must remain united, unified today and tomorrow and the day after. For the years and decades to come, it will not be easy. There will be costs, but it is a price we have to pay. Yeah, so Biden administration has no interest in an off-ramp for this uh, Ukraine war. 
Here's a little bit more from Matt Pottinger. ...system that threatens the free world. And it, it, it really took the, the intervening five years from the end of World War II to the beginning of the Korean War for Americans and, and the West to kind of warm up to the idea that, yeah, this really is a Cold War. This is, some, this is a real existential competition. And it, it, was, the, it was the war in, uh, in uh, Korea that crystallized it for us. Last point to, to your point about um, the, the key difference, right? We, we did fight <laughs> on the Korean Peninsula together. It was a, a so-called police action where we had the entire UN with us. The Russians slept through the uh, session at the, uh, at the UN and they, they didn't veto it. Uh, and so you had the, the entire UN behind uh, the effort to push uh, North Korea and eventually the Chinese so-called volunteers out of, uh, out of Korea. This is now today the, the, uh, an advertisement, both a defensive and offensive advertisement for nuclear weapons. Uh, if Ukraine had only had the nuclear weapons that it gave up, uh, perhaps uh, Vladimir Putin would not have um, uh, made the calculations he's made and made the invasion that he's made. And at the same time, it shows that if you have got nukes, you've got a free hand to wage conventional or even terrorist wars uh, against your neighbors, um, without fear of, of direct retaliation. And that's why Iran is pursuing doggedly a nuclear weapons capability. It's not because they're going to nuke uh, Israel. It's because they want to be able to destroy Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and other countries using conventional means or using the terrorists that they fund uh, while enjoying the shade and protection of a nuclear umbrella at home. Matt, can I ask a question, which I'm really eager to hear your answer to? It seems to me that, that your successors at the National Security Council and the Biden administration have carried over a lot of what you and HR put in place in the national security strategy of 2017, a lot, especially on China. Uh, but they don't like to use the terminology of Cold War. In fact, Biden explicitly said to Xi Jinping. OK, let's get some John Mearsheimer on a possible new deal with Iran. In an uncertain world, what one might even call a radically uncertain world. And when you're trying to do prediction in an uncertain world, it's not easy to do. And you want to be humble. So you want to be aware that what I'm doing here is just giving you my best guess. And there is some reasonable chance that I will be proved wrong. I've made a large number of predictions in my life, and I'm sad to say that all of them have not come true. But anyway, I'm basically going to tell you why I think uh, that uh, within the next 10 years, Iran will acquire the bomb. And uh, as you know, it's already a hedger. But the question is, will it cross the threshold and become a nuclear weapon state? Uh, and my answer is that it will. Uh, what I want to do here is I want to give you... So Mearsheimer videos are just getting millions of views right now because of his accurate predictions about Ukraine. He wrote an essay back in 1993 saying that Ukraine should not give up nuclear weapons. And uh, he's the, the most uh, prominent, most important international relations theorist in the, in the world today. You, my basic framework uh, that I use to analyze... Uh, proliferation and to assess the prospects that any country uh, will become a proliferator. And after briefly laying out that framework, plugging the Iranian case into the framework and showing why you showing you why I come to the conclusion that I do. Now, obviously, not all states in the system 
uh, acquire nuclear weapons. And I think whether a state becomes a nuclear weapon state, whether it acquires the bomb, uh, depends on two factors. One is its ambition. In other words, does it really want the bomb? And number two is its ability to get it. Uh, a few words about both ambition and ability. Uh, with regard to ambition, it's sometimes quite hard to read a state's ambitions uh, because states have incentives, as you all know, to misrepresent what they're up to. Uh, and furthermore, there is something of a relationship between your ability to get the bomb and what your stated ambitions are. If you have no ability to get the bomb for one reason or another, you're not going to look very ambitious. So ambition is you always want to be aware, somewhat difficult to discern. Uh, with regard to abilities, uh, there are two closely related issues there. One is whether or not you have the technology. Uh, and here I think basically talking about ENR. Uh, do you have the technology? And then secondly, are there thwarters in the system? The thwarters are basically the great powers in good part or recent, in recent memory, the United States. The thwarters or the thwarter have the ability to stop you uh, from getting nuclear weapons or drive the cost to the point where it makes no sense. Uh, so again, when we talk about the ability of a state to get nuclear weapons, we want to ask one, whether it has the technology and two, what about the thwarters? And by the way, when you think about thwarters, thwarters can stop nuclear proliferation in one of two ways. One is with military force and the other is with economic sanctions. That, that, that's, those are sort of the, the one two punch that the thwarter has to prevent proliferation. So let me now talk about Iran's ambitions, and then I'll talk about Iran's abilities. And you all want to be aware that we're talking about the present and really the future. We're not talking so much about the past. The past will come up from time to time. But really, the key here is the present and the future. Where are we now uh, with regard to Iran? Uh, I think there are lots of reasons to think that uh, Iran has nuclear ambitions, that it wants to get the bomb. Uh, the first reason is that they did pursue the bomb between 1988 and 2003. I think that most people agree on this. Uh, the intelligence community in the United States certainly thinks that's the case, that Iran once was pursuing the bomb. So it's not unthinkable. This is not some wild and crazy idea that I concocted last night before I uh, uh, made my presentation today. They once were pursuing the bomb. The second reason, uh, and maybe the more important reason, uh, is it makes eminently good sense. Uh, I remember when Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, uh, once said, the reason I believe that Iran is pursuing the bomb is because it makes so much sense. Uh, he was basically saying that if I were an Iranian, I'd be pursuing the bomb myself. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense. Now, why is that the case? First of all, Iran lives in a dangerous neighborhood. There's no question about that. It has what I would call mortal enemies. Uh, certainly the United States and Israel are mortal enemies. Uh, I'd say Saudi Arabia is an enemy. Uh, and of course, the Iranians themselves behave in highly aggressive ways. It's not like they're shrinking violets in the region. They're quite aggressive and that helps make enemies. And as you know, when you're involved in contact sports, uh, it can be very dangerous. And uh, so they live in a dangerous world. And on top of that, nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent, right? It doesn't get any better than nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course, this is why states pursue nuclear weapons. I believe that if Iran had nuclear weapons, the United States and Israel would not be threatening to attack Iran. You don't, you don't attack a country that has nuclear weapons and put its survival at risk. So I think if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, uh, the United States and, and Israel would back off and stop threatening them. But just to take this a step further, let's look at some analogous cases. Think of Ukraine today. 
Uh, I wrote an article in 1993 that said Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons because someday the Russians may come knocking at the door. Everybody at the time thought I was a lunatic. This was an irresponsible article. There was no threat to Ukraine from Russia. My basic argument was you can never know the future intentions of other states. And if you're Ukraine and you're living next door to the bear, it'd be nice to have nuclear weapons uh, down the road. Uh, well, don't you think it would be a good idea if Ukraine had nuclear weapons today? You think the Russian army would be in Ukraine if they had nuclear weapons? I don't think so. Uh, then there's always the case of uh, Libya. You remember Colonel Gaddafi? Uh, we told Colonel Gaddafi that if he gave up his nuclear weapons program, his weapons of mass destruction programs, that we would leave him alone. Uh, you know what happened to Colonel Gaddafi. He's now six feet under, and we helped put him six feet under. Uh, if I were Colonel Gaddafi, I would have developed nuclear weapons. North Korea? You think seriously that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons? I don't understand the charade that we engage in where we're constantly acting as if North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons. They'd be nuts to give up their nuclear weapons. Oh, by the way, do you see any evidence the United States is giving up its nuclear weapons? Is Israel giving up its nuclear weapons? Is Britain giving up its nuclear weapons? Is India, Pakistan? Of course they're not. Why not? Because nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent. In the case of Israel, it's by far the most powerful military in the Middle East at the conventional level. Does it really need nuclear weapons? You could argue it doesn't, but they're not giving them up, nor is Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is by far the most powerful state on the planet in terms of its conventional forces. It has never shown an iota of interest in giving up its nuclear weapons. In fact, it's going to modernize its nuclear deterrent. So all I'm saying here is they're really powerful incentives for a country living in a dangerous neighborhood. Uh, that has the United States and Israel out there with their gun sights on you to get nuclear weapons. Now, you might say, okay, John, but between 2003 and 2018, uh, it's quite clear that Iran was not pursuing nuclear weapons. Uh, so maybe you're wrong. Uh, this brings us to the subject of their ability to get nuclear weapons, because my argument is they gave up trying to get nuclear weapons from 2003 to 2018, not because the ambition wasn't there, but because they didn't have the ability to get it. So let me talk about Iran's ability to cross the Rubicon moving forward over the next 10 or so years. Uh, and let me just remind you that when I think about their ability, I wanna think one about the technology, do they have the technology? And number two, what about the thwarters? Uh, with regard to the technology, this is an open and shut case. They have the technology. They've had the ENR since the 1990s. They're now enriching up to 60%. Uh, and there are all sorts of reports in the media that they could have enough fissile material for a bomb, uh, you know, in three or four weeks. Uh, so there's no question that the technology is there. Uh, and I think the only really interesting question on the table has to do with the thwarters. Uh, can the thwarters uh, in the future uh, prevent Iran from taking that technology that it has and actually building nuclear weapons. Uh, and I'm very pessimistic about the future for two reasons. Uh, the first reason I'm pessimistic about the future has to do with uh, Eliza's basic theory uh, about nuclear proliferation, which I find to be very powerful. Her basic argument is that, is that to prevent proliferation, it's very important that the great powers in the international system, these are the thwarters, cooperate with each other. In other words, if you're back in the Cold War, her story is it was important for the United States and the Soviet Union to work together to prevent proliferation. And her argument is that the more, the more great powers there are in the system and the more intense the security competition among them, the harder it is to curb proliferation. And her basic argument is, and it makes common sense, is that in a unipolar world, that's the best 
that that's the best world for preventing proliferation because by definition there's only one great power and that one great power doesn't have to coordinate with other great powers so she's basically arguing that in the unipolar moment which in my opinion ran from about 1990 to 2017 we were in a terrific situation for purposes of controlling proliferation at the same time her argument is that the worst so uh, mike sotovich is another member of the distant right who's kind of pro-putin He's uh, tweeting that Ukrainian soldiers are shooting captured Russian soldiers in their kneecaps. None of this will be covered by Western media. You, you, you Ukraine supporters haven't thought through the second order effect. So I think people get addicted to distant takes because they realized that the mainstream media was lying to them about some issues. And so they became highly skeptical of the mainstream media, which is can be perfectly useful, but then they don't apply any skepticism to the dissident side. So people seem to need to believe in something. And wow, like all these dissident right people that uh, I saw in 2015, 2016 coming up, they then jumped on the COVID is just the flu man. And uh, now the Ukraine war is all a hoax or you know, Ukraine, just a, a bunch of Nazis, they don't deserve our support. And so I think people get addicted to distant takes and like, like Scott Adams, like Scott Adams had a lot of interesting, useful things to say in 2015, 2016. And, uh, then he's just, just gone in a, another direction the past uh, year or two. The worst world you can be in for preventing proliferation is a multipolar world where there is an intense security competition among the great powers. Well, guess what? We're in a multipolar world. Think unipolarity, bipolarity, multipolarity. We're in a multipolar world, and we definitely have an intense security competition. I would argue if you look at what's going on in you. So when I did my last shows a week ago, and uh, I think Elliot asked me for my opinion about what was happening in Ukraine, I said uh, stalemate, and that seems to have borne up. The, the past week or so shows Russia retreating in some places but overall a stalemate in the war in Ukraine. Ukraine, the United States has basically declared war on Russia. This is in many ways a U.S.-Russian war. I am really scared about where this one is headed. This is a really dangerous situation. And by the way, I've been arguing for a long time that the U.S.-Russia dyad in this multipolar world is not the most dangerous one. I think it's the U.S.-China dyad. Think so when Mearsheimer says the U.S. effectively declared war on Russia, he's talking about, I think, in part, uh, moving the borders of NATO right up to near the borders of Russia, and also these very damaging sanctions that uh, Putin is regarding them as essentially a declaration of war. Think Taiwan, think the South China Sea, think the East China Sea. We're not going to have a lot of cooperation between Russia, the United States, and China for purposes of holding down proliferation. And this is going to create all sorts of opportunities uh, for Iran to take advantage of the situation and move down the nuclear road. Just think about uh, the JCPOA, which we're in all likelihood going to go back into. Uh, once we're back into the JCPOA, the sanctions are going to come off. And let's assume that in five or six or seven years, the Iranians begin to move uh, towards developing nuclear weapons. Do you seriously think that the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans are going to be able to come together and create a sanctions regime like the one that existed between 2003 and 2018 during the unipolar moment uh, to 
reimpose sanctions on Iran and shut down their nuclear program? It's possible. I mean, again, I, as I said to you before, we're talking about the future and the future is uncertain. But I would say I wouldn't bet a lot of money on that. Uh, I think, you know, once Iran's back into the JCPOA and those sanctions come off, it's going to be very hard for the great powers to cooperate in large part because, as Eliza says in her theory, in a multipolar world where there's intense security competition, it's going to be hard to corral proliferation. Uh, and by the way, if you... So Biden is not getting much of a boost rally around the flag effect with regard to the war in Ukraine because people are much more focused on inflation in the economy. So Biden's got uh, pretty close to historically low approval ratings. Followed the recent dust up, and I'm sure most of you have, between Russia and the United States over getting back into the JCPOA. Uh, I think this is a harbinger of things to come. Uh, so in short, a multipolar world with intense security competition is a real problem. The second real problem is American domestic politics. Uh, it's not politically correct in the United States to talk about this, but the fact is that both Israel, the state of Israel, and the Israel lobby in the United States are adamantly opposed to the JCPOA and adamantly opposed to any kind of agreement that leaves Iran with the ability to enrich. Furthermore, Israel and lobby dislike Iran intensely. My view on how best to prevent Iran from going nuclear is to remove the threat to Iran from both the United States and Israel. I believe it should be clear from my comments that states get nuclear weapons because they're scared, they're fearful. Well, if the United States and Israel continue to threaten Iran, then they give Iran an incentive to get nuclear weapons. Therefore, so this uh, John Mearsheimer video is called Will Iran Get the Bomb? And it was streamed live March 17th. Or in my opinion, what we should have done, we meaning the United States, in 2015 was we should have signed the JCPOA. We should have been aware that these sunset clauses were embedded in it that might cause us trouble down the road. But to head the problem off at the pass, we should have gone to great lengths to foster good relations with the Iranians all for the purposes of removing as much as possible their incentive for acquiring nuclear weapons. But that's not the way we have behaved, and it is not the way we will behave. If we get back into the JCPOA, you can rest assured that the Israelis, the lobby, and many of those uh, people in Congress who support Israel down the line will do everything they can to undermine the JCPOA and make sure that we have hostile relations towards Iran moving forward. Uh, and the end result of all this is it's going to be hard uh, to get Iran not to go nuclear. Again, you want to remember, this is a country that has the technology, one. Number two, this is a country that has gone down the nuclear road before, before 2003, right? Number three, we're now in a world where the Russians and the Chinese are beginning to have closer and closer relations with Iran and more disputatious relations with the United States, right? And this is not going to make for highly likely cooperative agreements to stop Iran. And then finally, you have American domestic politics, which is just not to be underestimated on this issue. So for all these reasons, I think that it is likely, uh, this is my best guess, that uh, within 10 years, uh, the Iranians uh, will acquire uh, nuclear weapons. 
Now, I just want to say two final points about this. Uh, one is, if I were in Iran's shoes, they would definitely get nuclear weapons, right? But I want to make it clear that it is not in America's interest for Iran to get nuclear weapons. I'm not saying that it would be good for the United States or Turkey or any other country in the region for Iran to get nuclear weapons. That's not my argument. I hope that Iran doesn't get nuclear weapons. In fact, to be honest with you, I think the ideal nuclear world is one where only one state has nuclear weapons, the United States of America. That's the ideal nuclear world from my point of view. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the likelihood that Iran will get the bomb. And Iran's incentive structure is different than our incentive structure. And what I'm trying to do here is put myself in the shoes of an Iranian policymaker and think about how to approach it from that angle. So I think the best we can do moving forward is hope that we can keep Iran as a nuclear hedger and preventing it from crossing the Rubicon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Okay, we're looking at the largest uh, ever population movement in history, says uh, Peter Zion here. The Russians in the short term have two major goals. The first one, of course, is the one everyone's heard about, which is the destruction of Kiev. Uh, and then the second one is establishing a corridor through the southern parts of the country to eventually be able to attack Odessa. Because once Odessa and Kiev fall, the country will be from a conventional point of view, shattered. Odessa is their primary export point, it's their primary import point. Kiev is the political capital, obviously. And I don't want to say something simple like, you know, at that point it's a mop-up, but that's when the nature of the war evolves uh, from a conventional tank versus tank, jet versus jet fight to going after the civilians. And that's something that the Russians have already pivoted on. Once they realized that the Ukrainians were going to strike back, the Russians started dusting off their old playbook of what they did in Grozny during the Chechen War and what they did in Aleppo during the Syrian Civil War. And the goal is a complete obliteration of all civilian infrastructure. Uh, the idea being that this will force huge numbers of refugees to go somewhere else, and if people are not there, then there's no one to shoot. Everything is destroyed. And anyone who's remaining is a partisan or a guerrilla, and they can be shot on sight. So what we're looking at here is the beginning of the complete destruction of all Ukrainian infrastructure, which will remove Ukraine from any pretense of participating in the global economic system. And that has any number of effects down the road, even if there are no new sanctions. There have been a lot of things about this war that have not unfolded the way that anyone really thought. We've always thought of the Russians not necessarily as a peer competitor in the post-Soviet world, but as a near peer with some of the best military discipline, some of the best air power, certainly the best anti-air defenses on the planet. And we see them in places like Chechnya or Libya or Mali or Syria, where they have been the defining factor that have tipped forces in directions that they wanted to go. And we know from experience that their hacking capacity is among the best in the world. But then the war happened, and every single one of the assumptions that we thought were rock solid have been proven to, at least so far, been inaccurate. So they still, still haven't achieved air superiority. The Ukrainians are still running 20 to 30 sorties a day, even though supposedly the S-400, which is the best anti-air asset on the planet, has almost near coverage of the entire Ukrainian country. It, they can't seem to shoot anything down. And on cyber, we expected a full-blown cyber assault on all things Ukrainian and not an insignificant number of them in the West, but there's been nothing. Now, I, I can offer you some potential explanations for these. And in the case of cyber, we've always known that the core of the cyber capacity was Russian organized crime that the, the Russians just turned a blind eye to. But for whatever reason, the Russian government has been unable to turn Russian cyber crime against offensive targets. 
we're kind of, you know, from an analytical point of view, kind of guessing as we go when it comes to all the tactics, because everything that we thought we knew about how the Russian system worked isn't working the way we anticipated. Now, if you're Ukrainian, this is brilliant news because it means all of a sudden you're able to actually bloody the Russians. Uh, and if you're in the West, it means that the Russians may be a lot more vulnerable than we ever thought. But there are downsides. We're talking about a country here that at the beginning of the war had 45 million people. And it was one of the most rapidly aging countries. Uh, I think it was the fifth fastest aging society in the world. So not a lot of children relative to the size of the overall population and a fair number of people who are 50 and older relative to the size of the population. Uh, the people who are most likely to flee are women under the age of 40 and children. We decided if there's the slightest hope, we need to leave. So you're taking the demographic future of the second most populous country in Europe and removing it. And wherever they go, I'd say even odds, I'd say probably half of the population is going to stay. Like, let's assume that a year from now, when the Russians are done, they leave. I don't think they will. Let's just assume that they do. But they'll have destroyed all of the civilian infrastructure. So anyone who goes back has a very dark, difficult, impoverished future ahead of them. We hoped there would be no war. We did not think there would be a large-scale war close to our borders. But nonetheless... Okay, on the our positive side, Qantas has released the latest version of its I Still Call Australia Home.
Bye-bye.